Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Black Panther. I have seen gods fly. I've seen men build weapons that I couldn't even imagine. Uh-huh. I've seen aliens drop from the sky. Yeah. But I have never seen anything like this. How much more are you hiding? Hola. Let's go, go, go. My son, it is your time. Show me my respect and bow down. You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. Don't freeze. I never freeze. The revolution will not be televised. Show me my respect. And bow down. We own ya. We own ya. We only get started now. Cause we own ya. Everybody think they know me now. Cause we own ya. You and not my homie. Cause we own ya. I waited my entire life for this. The world's gonna start over. I'ma burn it all. What happens now determines what happens. To the rest of the world. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. The revolution will not be televised. Let's have some fun. The revolution. Now, this one is special. We knew it was going to be, but it has exceeded even those expectations and become a phenomenon. The fact that the movie itself is just so multi-layered and significant on so many levels makes that phenomenon something that we want to see keep going to influence future media and the whole way the industry sees global tentpole event films. Because the word blockbuster seems to fall drastically short when we're talking about this one. With us is a gathering of guests with a lot to say about Black Panther. We have show regulars like Brendan Agnew. Happy to be here. Karen Nagisa. Hey there. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Of Sequentially Yours. And for maybe the first time on our movie shows, a regular voice in the New Century audio dramas, Mr. Spencer Lieb. Hello. But this film is so much more important to so many people than a bunch of movie-obsessed white dudes, so we welcome back on one of our Marvel regulars, Mr. Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. Good day, sir. Singer-songwriter Akila Edwards. Hello. And co-host of The Essentials, Eric Jones. Thanks for having me. So including Sharon and myself, that is nine people to talk about Black Panther. For my part, I'm going to try to get a few things said before we begin so that I can step back and let the rest talk it through. For various reasons, I had a lot riding on this one to succeed. 
for many years I've followed the state of racial affairs in America, what began with a sympathetic interest in the African-American community based on movies that I saw and comedians that I enjoyed in my younger days, expanded into rigorous research into the history of slavery and the period leading up to and beyond the American Civil War and the Reconstruction period that followed for the books that I write. I didn't just create Thomas Arlington and his family to be tokenistic. I am exploring a time period with the safety blanket of speculative sci-fi alternative history leading on from the very real events leading up to it. And this is what Black Panther does too, asking, what if the white man didn't control absolutely everything? The kidnap and bondage of the African people, coupled with 152 years and counting of restriction, resentment, fear, hostility, and enforced social immobility is one of the measurably recorded, unforgivable injustices of history. This is always very difficult for white people to weigh in on. It is both none of our business and part of our responsibility that we share to be truthful and clear and try to make amends advancing towards a future of equality and pushing through the obstacles of regressives together. There haven't been movies made like Black Panther, not with the enormous amounts of money and marketing put into them. All black casts are present in some movies aimed at specific markets, not everyone. And the cast alone doesn't come close to encompassing how empowering it is to see an entire nation quite so advanced and free and beautiful and progressive and inspiring and in control of their lives. There are no parallels for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant audiences because this contrast requires a measure of being kept down, something we experience as individuals but not collectively. So when people say Blade was a black superhero, that misses the point. That Blade was a black man in America barely featured into the story throughout all three movies. That T'Challa and the rest of the characters are black is key, but the fact that they are Wakandan is far more significant. Will Smith and Martin Lawrence in Bad Boys interacting with an all-black family, even Eddie Murphy and company in Coming to America, cannot compare. It's not just the cast, it's the world, it's Wakanda. The similarly fictional African nation of Zamunda was seen in a few minutes at the beginning of Coming to America in a snapshot at the end. Only the palace, and it's never really discussed as a conceptual place that has any kind of influence. It is only known that King Joffe, played by the amazing James L. Jones, was wealthy as hell. That was the best it has ever been in this regard, and it was directed by a white man, John Landis. Now, 30 years later, with this film, people of colour finally have the evolution of that in such rich detail. Some of the meanest white people out there commented on release that Wakanda isn't real. We know exactly what you mean, even if you don't, you worms. Don't dream, don't aspire, you will never make this place real. And you're dumb if you think it might be real. Utopian sci-fi, like Star Trek, was designed to help mankind shoot for the stars. Avatar did amazingly well on a level nobody really even talks about, returning us to a tribal state in a lush, vibrant, primal landscape that felt tangible. Wakanda manages both at once, and that makes this one of the most significant, important movies ever released. So I won't say Black Panther may change the world someday. It already is.
first thing we see is African oral tradition passed down for tens of thousands of years, here given a sci-fi visual upgrade with the sand from Shuri's nano-age technological table, perfectly fusing heritage and progression, and exemplifying how that symbiosis can make each pursuit better. Woven through this scene, though, is the assumption that we're hearing T'Chaka telling his young son T'Challa about Wakanda. It's actually his brother Njobu telling young Eric about their homeland, expressing such love for a place he will never see again. And his son will wind up only seeing once. It ends on the question, do we still hide? And if so, why? And that is left hanging for the movie to address. One thing about the cinematography that I adore about this is uh, Rachel Morrison is so very good at working the camera in such a way that it fits with the story and it feels natural to what's going on. It feels like you're there without having to do a lot of shaky cam bullshit. It's very, very steady, but it also flows very well. It's kind of like a river. Yeah, that's definitely something that I I really like about this. The fact that they're not constantly going for the shaky cam. You're there in the moment all the time. It is like this is actually a an outside view of what's going on with excellent transitions from either lower floor to upper floor or from one location to another. I just love the way the transitions and the camera work is so steady. The scene, the shot where uh, Killmonger is walking to the throne, it starts upside down and slowly turns. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's beautiful. And I've seen it twice now, and I love it more each time I see it. That we... He's t- literally turning Wakanda upside down. Yep. <laughs> and there's a there's a different kind of camera work that they have in this to the average Marvel because this is the first time they've really had to sell a country. If you don't count Asgard, which is really very focused on the, the royal city, this is the first time they have an entire nation to for it to be big enough to portray. And one of the things that really hit me about it was this sense of the widening of the Marvel world, of it getting bigger and going beyond where we've been before. And this is bearing in mind we've been in space. We've seen planets, <laughs> but but from such a distance that you don't really get a feel of them being um, countries and nations and, and people. You either see the very close up or the very, very distant and the cosmic scale. And you, this gives you that midpoint that really makes it feel tangible. You pretty much paraphrased Martin Freeman in the trailer there, saying, I have seen oh. gods fall from the sky, <laughs> but I have, meaning you, the audience, never seen anything like this. But before, before today, <laughs> I had not seen you. You. <laughs> <laughs> Also, every time that shot, I, I understand what T'Challa is saying when he says, I never get tired of this. Mm-hmm. When we see that shot of Bird and Zana mm. coming in from the this, yeah, plane, oh, yeah. breathtaking. Uh, that, Absolutely breathtaking. That's a little uh, nod to the people watching it for the 20th time as well. Yeah. It's like a little, nah, it doesn't get old. This is just wonderful. <laughs> there is something supremely powerful about the flyover Wakanda at the beginning. Africa is, after all, the cradle of life, the crucible mankind sprang from. So when Akoya says, we are home, she really means it. And the feeling I got watching Africa rise up in all its ancient and futuristic glory was extraordinary.
I noticed a very strong sense of African design in the apartment in Oakland. It's something I've seen repeatedly on TV and movies, a lot of darker tones, a lot of reddish-brown natural wood and art from the countries of heritage. I would say it definitely there is, in some element, shape or form, from what I remember growing up in, there is always some sort of African element or African trinket or African culture that's in my house. When I was young, I remember there being a Barbadian flag on the wall. I remember there being a clock of Barbados. I remember being a Jamaican clock on the, on the, on the wall. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily a whole design ethic, but something that reminds me of where my mom and dad came from. Hmm. There's always yeah. something there. Yeah, I have a very similar experience. Like, um, even if you go round to my parents' house now, uh, we've still got we've got African drums that my aunt, who lived in Ghana for a while, gave to us. We've got quite a few like paintings and artwork made by African or Jamaican artists. Um, we've got some wooden stools that were imported from Africa, and all over the house there's like um there's a like we have a version of the an Af- uh, black people in the um, Last Supper pose and. Like, just, it's not so much a conscious thought at the beginning, but over time, as you collect these things, and they become part of your household. It just, it's like a natural, evolving aesthetic for most people. It feels like they really wanted to connect you at the beginning to, to audiences around the world who come from somewhere to be able to go back to that place and, and to, to sort of take you back to your house when you were a kid. That was very deliberate that they started in Oakland rather than starting in Wakanda. They had to kind of start you at, at ground zero to then draw you back, if that makes sense. Mm. It to also connect, yeah. connect to the idea of roots, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Mm. that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to uh, chip in also. Sure. Um, I'm not from Africa directly, but my family on both my mother and my father's side, they're both from uh, the South, Southern united states so mm-hmm. especially in the so especially in the south those sort of those elements they come with you know they come with you so they yeah. came from so um they came from my grandmother and um my grandfather that were from the south that moved on to uh with my mother with my uh with my father not maybe not so much as uh come over with me as i have decorated my home now but um those elements um they said especially when you have family from the southern u.s um you know those elements that aesthetic definitely carries over Mm -hmm. even even if it's just one little item of uh something um it definitely carries over so that visually communicates within this film uh family and heritage before you even start the film. Mm. I think I did get a feel as well, and, and this is emphasized with uh, uh, Eric's ancestry visit, where it takes him to. The idea of home, it's a different thing to different people, but it's, it's equally strong regardless of, of who you are and where that, kind of internal home is for you and it, it can be you know externalized or internal i love how they communicated that 
concept of home with the purple sky being the unifier mm. yeah. across both visions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's carrying on the recent uh, trend from Marvel movies of color is like a big part of like the movie design following on from Thor Ragnarok and Garden Galaxy 2. Color has become a major factor of these new newer films and especially when so we'll talk about uh, like use of color and color design we'll talk about later things but the fact that the sky the aurora alice whenever you're in the, the spirit realm of uh the wakanda ancestry is that visual is just a wonderful thing to see on screen mm-hmm. that does seem to have been a particularly marvel thing as well the idea that um there, there was this phase of for a superhero movie to be taken seriously it has to have this grim dark aesthetic it has to be very gritty and and almost monochrome and they went nah stuff that we want paint mm-hmm. and brightness and you know things to be very colorful and and they don't always do that i, I did feel a bit out of place with the lighting to start with with this it was a little bit difficult to see what was going on at times during that opening action scene is very dark mm-hmm. possibly as a way of getting you into the uh, the heads of the uh, guys in the jeeps and and how friggin terrifying it is to have that reminded me when when T'Challa takes them apart of the uh, Batman Begins sequence where are you here only mm-hmm. T'Challa has no interest in messing with the minds of the people that he he uh, goes after. He this film and this character is a refinement of Batman and James Bond, which leaves both those fuckers in the twentieth century. Ultimately, Black Panther is Captain America crossed with Iron Man, both ideologically and power suit power set wise. Mm-hmm. He's Steve Rogers wearing a better than an Iron Man suit, yeah. and I think it's I think it's meant to be th- this idea of like. So, uh, uh, white people, while your two heroes are busy fighting each other, we've, we don't have this ideological split. We'll, we'll take care of things from here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> also, in relation to that scene at the beginning there, I just want to mention it tickled me every time. Both times we saw it, those guards kidnapping the women or whatever they're doing that they're stopping, they pan over, they see a dog, and they follow his gaze up in the tree, and Black Panther's up in the tree. So it's, it's literally a dog has a cat up a tree. <laughs> <laughs> There was a really tactful point made about the kidnapped boy soldiers here, reminding us that while it's not necessarily going to be a grim and gritty and baleful and depressing and regarding humanity as a dead-eyed collective parasitic organism kind of superhero movie, it's being created with an operative awareness of real-world plight. It's there in the background when you look. With that opening scene... Um, you sort of have like the the ideal version of Black Panther taking care of business very quickly. As soon as he meets Nakia, boom, he's like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> you have T'Challa, who is like the most together guy in, in all of Civil War. And then as soon as he goes home, he's like completely upstaged by his friends, his mom, his 16-year-old sister. And you're like, oh, wow. So this is the playing field we're at. This is... This is something very new. Like, even this guy seems out of his depth, even though in Civil War he was like, oh, wow, I just, that's that's our guy. That's that's who we want to be the most. Mm. I have to say the script for this absolutely killed me. It was, it, it made me laugh more than Guardians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's beautiful to see how many of these characters are just characters and the way they interact with one another. Like that opening scene just before T'Challa goes down the shoot thing and starts doing the attack. Okoye's little, like, rolling her eyes when he's saying, no, no, I got this. Mm. And stuff like that. These, yeah. mm-hmm. these, these very personal <laughs> These very personal interactions 
make this such a great is part of what makes this such a great film. And you know, you see it later when he's interacting with Ramonda and Shuri, and it's all of these little very human things. There's, that contributes to it. There's so much side eye in this movie. <laughs> Strong side eye. Indeed. It's it's very telling, I think, that they are a team. They are a really, really strong team going in. It's almost like what Avengers spends its entire runtime working towards, the Wakandans are at now. And it's it's sort of really that sense of of the standing on the shoulders and leaping off. Did he freeze? An antelope in headlights. <laughs> Are you finished? This movie has finally, finally superseded uh, Winter Soldier as my favorite, as, and what I think is the objectively best Marvel movie. Because um, mm. for the longest time, I thought Winter Soldier was just so good in every way. This does everything Winter Soldier does, and then better. And what it does better is it has a much better visual subtext. It does much better at using the cinematic language to get across messages. So uh, one of the immediate things is uh, we were talking about the the ancestral plane. The sky is purple, and purple comes up multiple times as the true color of nobility and royalty, which is obviously something that goes back through numerous cultures for generations and centuries and even millennia in some cases, back all the way down to like Justinian with purple as the noblest shroud. So the sky there is consistently colored purple because this is a place of kings. This is a place of secession and ancestry. And they do this great thing where when T'Challa is there, he's surrounded by it. He's out in the open plains speaking to his ancestors. When Eric is there, it's still outside the windows, but he's isolated from it because he's still not actually there because he doesn't actually belong there. He is not a true king. The two different suits, when they face off against each other, T'Challa chooses the suit that ultimately glows purple, the color of nobility, and also fundamentally the color of responsibility built into the crown, built into being a monarch, whereas Killmonger's suit is gold, which is the accoutrements of royalty, but all of the wrong things associated with it. It's just the wealth and the power, none of the actual responsibility, none of the actual uh, needs of someone who is in that role, because Killmonger is a very hollow king in name only. Mm. Yeah, the purple is also, as has already been pointed out, a blend of uh, Steve's blue and Tony's red. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Oh. Because he is the blend of Iron Man. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, again, I don't. I think that has always been very intentional. Well, uh, um, power-wise, power set-wise and, and tech-wise, yeah, but he has the position of Thor because he's the, he's the leader king, who has yeah. to lead a people who are all looking to him and actually do trust him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's got uh, Black Widow's stealth thing going on. And um, Hulk's ripped trousers? What are <laughs> Hulk not got much. Well, in Civil War, he has Hulk's anger. True, um, yeah. And Black Widow's need to atone for the sins of the past. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's kind of all the original Avengers rolled into one. Imagine if Black Panther was one of the Phase 1 films. How much better it is now than what it could have been. Even, like, I'm sure it would have been fantastic in 2010, mm-hmm. instead of Iron Man 2. But... What they're doing now is they're refining and the combining. So, uh, Doctor Strange, I think I've said something along, along those lines before. Doctor Strange is Tony Stark's arrogance, uh, but with Thor's mysticism uh, mixed in. And Captain Marvel will be Steve's, you know, military position, but with uh, Thor's powers or possibly a bit of Iron Man type, type of powers in there. And you know, you know, Spider Man is like a little mini young Iron Man, but with Steve Rogers' sense of got to do the right thing. Yeah. And so like, they've got all these sort of refinements and cocktails and blends, and each one is very distinct because I wasn't watching T'Challa and thinking, well, you're just Thor. 
at any point, actually. He, he's really distinct. And the thing that Marvel gets criticised for is the Marvel formula, but it is a constantly evolving formula. It, it, the fact that they can make the best Marvel film yet when they're 18 films in is really noteworthy. <laughs> The Marvel formula seems to be make good movies about people we like to watch on screen. Or tell good stories, yeah. Yeah. specifically. There are, that, that's a pretty good formula. It, yeah. yeah, there are definitely commonalities. I've, I've noticed that, you know, that there's a certain kind of... Uh, I watched a video on the, the three-act structure because David Fincher had been mouthing off because that's what people doing interviews do. They go, so, um, Francis Ford Coppola, what do you think of all these Marvel films? And Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> goes, well, I don't know, back in my day we did Apocalypse Now. Uh, and there's like a headline on BuzzFeed, Francis Ford Coppola hates Marvel. But yeah, Marvel do cleave very closely to a three-act structure. You know, we'll just take uh, Avengers, for example. Act one is uh, the setting up of the MacGuffin. Then act two is introducing the Avengers. Then act three is disassembling the Avengers. Uh, Then act four is the Avengers reassembled. And then act five is the resolution. Oh, wait, hang on. Sorry, that's a five-act structure. Sorry, that almost sounds like David Fincher's wrong. Mm -hmm. So David Fincher was lamenting the fact that there aren't five-act structure films coming out of the Marvel House of Ideas and that directors clearly won't have the freedom to do something that's really their thing and they're, they're going to be forced to do Disney's bidding. everybody to a three-act structure. I want the freedom of a five-act structure. Has anybody asked you to do a Marvel film, Fincher? Uh, well, no, but that's beside the uh, point. Jo- but Jodie Foster uh, recently said that... Um, that Was it blockbusters or superhero movies in general? I can't remember. I but think- she's, she's been in on it. She did an episode yeah. of um, Jessica Jones. Yeah. But she said that uh, these movies are poisoning the earth. Yeah, she said studios making bad content in order to appeal to the masses and shareholders is like fracking. You get the best return right now, but you wreck the earth. It's ruining the viewing habits of the American population and then ultimately the rest of the world. Birdman director Alejandro G. Initaru once described superhero movies as right wing. I always see them as killing people because they do not believe in what you believe or... They have been poisoned, this cultural genocide, because the audience is so overexposed to plot and expositions and shit that doesn't mean nothing about the experience of being human. You're right. You're right. We shouldn't be watching superhero movies, Jody. You're absolutely right. We should be watching Taxi Driver or Bugsy Malone or Silence of the Lambs or Freaky Friday or Flight Plan. You know, films about the experience of being human. Or Little Man Tate. Why did audiences stop watching Little Man Tate? Why did they start watching Iron Man? You know, we should be watching Inetaru's film The Revenant, where Tom Hardy disagrees with Leo DiCaprio about him wanting to survive and puts him in a hole. And then Leo DiCaprio then disagrees with Tom Hardy on his hands and knees all the way across the frozen tundra. And then he eats a fish. But that is what it is to be human. You're poisoning the planet with your Black Panther, Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really not, Jody. I I can understand why people um, on the outside would be bewildered at what Marvel keep doing and seemingly keeping their popularity, but it's it's something that's never really been done before not so successfully not so well not so sustained not in a way that really grows you would think that um once they hit 1.5 billion with avengers and then nearly that with iron man 3 but then they've never really made avengers money again that it's like well then you know it's it's kind of already peaked and now they're just coasting it <laughs> <laughs> if this is coasting, then I would hate Keep to coasting. see them peaking. 
uh, because uh, if, if they peak that. anymore, we won't have any money left. They'll own it all. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Too much awesome. The world but, will explode. I saw a Mickey Mouse um, ca- a cartoon where it was, it was a dictatorship uh, of Nazis run by Mickey Mouse, and there were Nazi Mickey Mouse soldiers marching around. And it was a, a cautionary tale, a little, you know, one, one picture to say, watch out because Disney have got the monopoly and... Um, the first post underneath this image on the Deviant Art page was ha ha ha. The second post was love this piece and fuck Disney. The Last Jedi was total crap, and most of all, that was an end of Star Wars. Thanks for ruining the greatest franchise of all time, Feminazi SJW. <laughs> we watched Coco today again, and I just thought at the end, the person who drew that needs to really acquaint themselves with Nazi propaganda films and then watch Coco and then think to themselves, why, oh, this this thing isn't like the other. There's There are dangers inherent in Disney having the monopoly and in forging forwards and absorbing all of these labels to their own. But there's a level of inclusivity and progression in what they're doing, which, again, hasn't been done before. The argument on Disney's growing monopoly is split to two extremes. One side are fixated on what this means for the movie continuity and combining universes, and the other, including a lot of smart, observant critics that I really trust and respect, are the voice of doom, looking down upon all these perceived little children, like Cassandra saying, Can you not see? They will control every single movie ever released, and all you care about is mutants fighting Avengers? And of course, this goes well beyond movies. Disney are already dug into a sizable portion of our day-to-day lives. I would like to propose a middle ground to this argument. A weary familiarity with the mechanics of capitalism, which, like any game of Monopoly, the kind with the little metal dog and the do-not-pass-go, when played for long enough, one entity will have made the right investment decisions enough to own everything. Couple that with an understanding of the need for restrictions on corporate growth to prevent this inevitability from reaching its natural course. But then you mix in being really psyched that Fox won't be able to keep fucking everything up because that's what they do. X-Men, Aliens, Predator, Die Hard, The Simpsons, all previously, in the case of X-Men, fleetingly, well-told creator-led stories, royally buggered by artless greed. All except Planet of the Apes. Burton's mess aside, the Caesar trilogy are superb and a fine example of a studio stepping back and letting the creators do their thing without meddling. Now, Disney is no stranger to that law of diminishing returns either, thank you Pirates of the Caribbean, but they seem to be better at maintaining quality than any other studio right now. Some lament that you'll never get R-rated Disney movies, but they've been doing this for years under the Touchstone and Buena Vista Pictures label. And if the market is there to be tapped, you can bet your ass Disney will tap it eventually. So to sum it up, my stance is, one, there should absolutely be regulations to prevent absolute monopolies. Two, there are things we can do about this that aren't relegated to endless sniping at Disney. Three, if these regulations fail to take hold and one corporation does end up far more prominent within entertainment, I'm glad it's Disney over any of the others. Four, I'm looking forward to them doing Fox properties well for a change. And five, 
This is actually the least of our goddamn worries when the president is pushing for teachers to introduce themselves at the beginning of every school year to their students and know in their hearts that there is a slim likelihood that they will have to shoot one of them dead at some point throughout the year. Direct your fire towards that atrocity of corporate corruption before anything else. Now that I've chilled your blood to the bone, let's talk about a movie. I will actually mention the stunts and effects because I have heard people criticizing the CG and and just the general, like the car jumping stunts and the falling down into the train section at the end being a little bit too CG and and a little bit wobbly. I noticed when uh, we were watching Civil War at the time, what they've actually done with both Black Panther and Spider-Man for that film was to have the actor there in a in a full mocap suit and then CG the character over that. So rather than it just being a wibbly wobbly doll that there's nothing there, it's just a more sleek, refined, sort of pasted over version of Black Panther. But if you relax your eyes, you can still see it in both Civil War and um, and in this. And it's it's more significant in this it seems like more of the stunts in Civil War, there was actually a person there, a stuntman present, doing it. Whereas in some of these shots in Black Panther, Panther himself appears to be just pasted onto the screen. There's a subtle difference between the two. One of them feels a lot more physical. And the Russo brothers are just a shade better at selling that. And this is only for some shots and some uh, moments and some scenes. They are still thrilling and exhilarating but I can see why some people would be like well, that's a little bit wibbly and when he jumps onto that car I don't even really feel like there's a person jumping onto that car mm. there is a much more straightforward reason why it's not as noticeable in Civil War though and that's that it's very rare that you see Spider-Man on screen on his own Yeah. whereas with Black Panther it, it is quite a lot of the time mm. him by himself but say when Okoya is surfing on a car I never for once thought well that's just wibbly CG no. that effect was really that sold. That is a lady in an evening gown on a car. And yeah. it's awesome. Please <laughs> continue here. doing that. <laughs> well, you, you didn't know that Denai Gurra could actually do that? No, that was, that was just her. That no, was just they, her. She just yeah. did it on the day. No big deal. Yeah, funny story. It actually wasn't in the script. It's just she did it and they're like, oh, we can use that. <laughs> I can't pick holes in this film at all as far as I'm concerned. It was exactly what I wanted to see. Uh, if, if I could have tweaked or changed anything, it would have been a slight... Uh, you know, lean lean towards physicality more than the dazzling CG sequences. But when they fall into the Vibranium Mountain, you know, it's kind of awe-inspiring. So there's a bit of swings and roundabouts on that. You couldn't really do that in real life. But at the same time, you couldn't see that unless you did it with some some you know, CG trickery. It's a little bit of a little bit I, of give and take. I didn't even notice the CG in that because I was too shocked by watching this happen and noticing that the music dropped out and all that mm. we're hearing is them fighting. Which creates the effect that the music is going on during the battle up top, so when they fall down below it, the battle gets whipped away from them along with the music. And that just... that I, I did not even notice the CG because I wasn't even paying attention to that at that point. Yeah. And just the story, and I was so engaged... The choreography is so good, and the story is so engaged, and I, I care about these characters. Uh, Kermode, uh, Mark Kermode, one of my f- uh, favorite reviewers, is a crusty old man, and he, he has no time for um, uh, battles and uh, sci-fi and uh, big robots hitting each other. He, he did not care for the ending of Iron Man. He was like, well, it's, it, it's great, and then it goes all Transformers at the end. There is always thing with, with, with these films is that as you move towards the sort of later acts, as they move towards battles... The battles are always the point at which I become slightly disconnected because what I'm really interested in is characters. I'm not that interested in spectacle. In this 
final sort of act when various characters are battling each other, I knew at every moment who everyone was. It's an amazing achievement, really. What everyone was doing, why they were doing it, who they were doing it with or against or for or in spite of. And all those things were happening. And my my emotional engagement was, you know, was completely connected with it. So the most important thing, quite apart from what you talked about in great depth and in that interview, which is absolutely right, is that this is, you know, there is an important cultural moment happening with the existence of this film. But the film has to work as a film. It has to, it stands or falls on whether or not it actually works as a film. And it does. And the key reason that it does is that you know and you care about the characters. Uh, he knew exactly what everyone's motive was to be in that ma- battle, that they were so visually representative through colour and confirmation of action throughout the movie leading up to that point that it led to a rare instance of total engagement during a battle scene where usually I, as well as Kermode, would just start to switch off because it's like, right, this is just a, an army of elves fighting an army of dwarves and no one exists. I mean, th- this is something that uh, the, the last Hobbit film really suffered from in- insofar as we actually had the reason for these five armies to fight, but we just didn't give a toss because they'd stretched it out for too long and it was just a bunch of, uh, it was just a fireworks show. They kept it short and focused and brightly coloured and it was very clear what was going on and why. Yeah, I've I've heard this described as both Shakespearean and a, like a Greek tragedy, and I'm like, yeah, this is Shakespeare nicked most of his best stuff from Greek tragedy. So that, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there we go. <laughs> and this fits. It's this Shakespeare is... nicked most of his best stuff. Period. <laughs> Just in terms of T'Challa's combat, it's done in such a way where it's not kind of here's two people punching the crap out of each other, but. Here's two people who actually are trained in martial arts, so they're all, it's all very economic. It, it's very much economy of motion, but not like I'm whacking you over the head. It's more like, no, I'm trying to do this and stay in position as quickly as possible. And also on that count, I would say it's an absolute masterstroke that you have the, um, the, the uh, it's not a duel, the, the challenge scene. Um, towards the beginning because you've got the proof of concept there. You've seen him out of the suit and, in fact, stripped of his powers, mm. still able to do all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. He's been a trained fighter all his life. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it also oh. establishes the concept so that when it really matters later on, you're totally on board and you know where it's going. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's a very sort of Rocky Three situation where you've got, okay, these are the rules, this is the fall, and now we bounce back. Um I, but it it feels so fresh each time you revisit. I mean, Cougar, I knew that he had something special when I saw Creed in terms of shooting action type sequences, because you have that single take boxing match in in Creed, and so I was sort of like looking for something like that in Black Panther. And so when you get to Busan, and that single shot glides through the entire casino, mm. uh, that that made me just about jump out of my chair and joy. And every time he does something, he's doing something different. He only has one car chase, and it's very different from most other car chases. You know, everything he does, he's doing something that, you know, even though you essentially have two strong dudes fighting for the crown three times, each time it's different. Um, yeah, for me, my, my favorite fight scene was the casino fight scene, because you don't only get to see a T'Challa's fighting style, which is like somebody who has 
great athletics, acrobatics, and a load of strength. But you also get to see um, uh, the the Jolle um, fighting style with the long vibranium spear where it moves so smooth that it looks like it dance half the time. Mm. And they bring in the uh, chanting uh, sound effect whenever she's battling. And then you've got uh, Nakia, sorry. Oh, Nakia. Um, oh, okay. She's been a war dog spy out in the world, and so she fights very much like how Black Widow would fight, where mm-hmm. anything that I have on hand is what I'm going to use to disable you. Mm-hmm. And you get, like, um, I'd recommend anybody um, search for, um, go to Vanity Fair and search for Ryan Coogler Breakdown, that fight scene. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's so much symbolism, and uh, he talks about, uh, like, why um, Okoye throws off that wig and how she's, like, why that's an actual big thing and he breaks down each person's fighting style like i'd recommend like after listen to this go watch that and to see what the director was thinking throughout that whole scene something that we don't get to see much in movies anymore um sometimes not even in the marvel ones everything about black panther the costumes the the subtext the writing the action the directing all of it is so good and what it all comes down to is it all reeks of the people who made this cared um, and you breaking down that Ryan Coogler went through of like, okay, this is this fighting style. This is this fighting style. Here's what this means. Here's what the audience can tell when the people who worked on something like this project mattered to them. It, it to starkly contrast with this with Transformers, where it, it's the opposite, where Michael Bay's disdain for the audience comes through in every shot of those of every one of those movies where he he just so doesn't care and is actually like like offended that anyone would want to watch this versus <laughs> Ryan Coogler and Black Panther where he's like, yeah, this is awesome and this can matter and let me show you why. And we're all like, yeah, we agree. Let's all get on board this hover train and watch people kill each other. Like, like watch <laughs> the, the superpowered people punch each other over over race politics. This is awesome. <laughs> but you're right about <laughs> that that quality of, of caring and, and putting that much effort and having that much... Uh, understanding of what it is that that you're doing and it's one of the things that I lament one of the few things that I lament about the Marvel movies is that there hasn't been as far as I'm concerned enough behind the scenes making of Mm. stuff that really goes into depth I mean personally I would like a full-on Lord Lord of the the Rings Rings, style film school on each one of these damn movies and I know we're never going to get that but anybody who is willing to explain you know the thought processes and and where all that comes from I'm I'm always going to be incredibly grateful for this is why those allegations of Disney are paying off reviewers with their corrupt collusion Disney are paying off incredibly high quality intelligent and well trained (laughs) filmmakers to hone their craft who give a shit all of those films that don't get fantastic I mean I'm not saying that Zack Snyder doesn't give a shit but there is a a world of difference between David Ayer fuck Marvel and Ryan Coogler somebody touches a quick that's the first thing that somebody does and an idea of how Wakandans react to being touched unwarranted this idea of not being in control of your own your own body and, and and it also comes with being a, being a woman as well. A world of difference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. This oh, yeah. It's not a conspiracy. <laughs> well, and I think it's very clear that Zack Schneider didn't give a shit when it came to a couple of those movies. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah uh, and Coogler's gone on record saying that Marvel kept telling him to make it more personal. Like, you brought up Ant-Man. I don't think Ant-Man would happen the way it did now. I think they would have figured their stuff out because mm. ever since the creative committee got dissolved, 
I mean, you've seen just a jump in how much directors are putting their personal stamp on movies where James Gunn didn't have to answer to anything for Guardians 2. Taika Waititi got to make something completely different for Thor 3. And Ryan Coogler, like, you know, there's there's a if you go on Variety, you can also listen to um, him talk to Chris Tapley about just like the process of approaching Marvel or being approached by Marvel and, and just, you know, a lot of the things that went to the process of him making Black Panther. He was very much encouraged and yeah, no, go ahead. Make it more personal. Do that. No, that's a great idea. Yes. Go go for it from that angle. You know, we cut to Aquaria and we see her in this red dress. You'll see, you know, nobody else in this in this sequence is wearing the color red. Nobody else in the sequence is wearing the color green. Folks who are familiar with um, uh, the concept of Pan-Africanism, the Pan-African flag is is, is uh, red, black, and green. So when you see T'Challa, Nakia, and Akwe in there in covert looks, you know you, you see the colors of the, of the Pan-African flag. I I don't think that Edgar Wright would have had to walk off if he were making Ant-Man now. Yeah, when Ike Perlmutter got pushed, I was just about to, to say, side, is it to do with yeah. Ike Perlmutter, the guy who was like, nah, no one wants to watch a girl superhero movie? Yeah, oh, what a terrible person he is. <sighs> <laughs> not just because, not just because of his uh, poor taste in movie making, because of a lot of things. But yeah, oh, mm. Ike Perlmutter, I'm glad that he is out of the decision making process for the most part. I lived my entire life waiting for this moment. I trained. I lied. I killed. Just to get here. I killed in America. Afghanistan. Iraq. I took life from my own brothers and sisters right here on this continent. And all this death. Just so I could kill you. So I'm going to talk about Killmonger and how he relates to all the previous Marvel villains with a couple of notable exceptions. There's been a lot of talk of him being the best Marvel villain so far, and I'd like to explore that. I would posit that he's standing atop a mountain of similar villains, which he had to climb past to reach that spot, and his journey throughout the film Black Panther is a refinement of the formula so far. So you take a hero. Tony Stark, Bruce Banner, Thor, Steve Rogers, Scott Lang, Stephen Strange, T'Challa. You look at his father figure, if not his actual father, then a senior male authority in the story that the hero is on some level trying to impress, live up to, or in some way challenge. So Howard Stark, General Ross, Odin, Dr. Erskine, Hank Pym, the Ancient One, T'Chaka. Then you take a brother figure. In some cases, it's the actual sibling, but in nearly every instance, it's another male who is also vying for the attention or approval or betterment of themselves through the destruction and surpassing of that father figure. And this is because they have either not measured up to his expectation themselves, or they are so ruled by anger, selfish intent, greed, cruelty, or rigidity that they cannot gain that ultimate approval. So that's Obadiah Stane, Emil Blonsky, Loki, Red Skull, Darren Cross, Mordo, Hela, and Killmonger. Their reaction to this paternal rejection is to hurt and destroy, frequently in a big, dark, scary version of the hero's outfit. Ironmonger's hostile takeover of the Stark Industries that he sees as rightfully his, since Tony went all hippy-dippy. He never went far enough with the weapon selling anyway. Abomination trashing Harlem to get the Hulk to fight him and prove himself better. Loki's takeover of Asgard and attempted destruction of Jotunheim, and then attempted takeover of Earth in order to destroy his shameful heritage and claim some kind of throne that had been denied to him, a prince without a kingdom. 
Red Skull attempting to destroy major cities with bombs. There's not much complexity going on with that one. Darren Cross, same thing as Obadiah Stane, only with miniaturization tech. Hela was locked away because she reminded Odin of his warlike younger days, much like Obadiah is representative of Howard Stark's legacy of monetized conquest. Hela seeks to return to that, disapproving of Odin's later peaceful rulership, the way that Obadiah despises Tony's new compassionate outlook. And Mordo is part of an evolution of this Phase 1 and 2 villain. He sees his mentor, the Ancient One, as corrupt, drawing her power from a dark realm whilst keeping that fact hidden. In response, he seeks to rebalance the world by removing magic. This is something that could be fascinating in Doctor Strange 2, and he's way more interesting than Kaecilius, who is similarly rejected evil student looking to put an end to everything. And finally, Killmonger and his hostile takeover and forcing Wakanda into arming people of colour in preparation for violent revolutions all around the world, and he doesn't care who he harms to get this done. Like Mordo, Eric isn't seeking T'Chaka's approval. He's looking to subvert Wakanda rather than destroy everything that the murderer of his father represented. He is continuing the work of his own father, whom he loved. That is the approval he's seeking, and he spent his whole life preparing and waiting for this revenge with a Shakespearean intensity. It would be easy in blockbuster language for him to want to blow Wakanda sky high, but the cities, refreshingly, are never placed in danger, and what he chooses to do challenges T'Challa to reevaluate how he sees Wakanda and its people and their role in the world. Obadiah didn't challenge Tony. He was always just there, suggesting the easy and dark side route for the son of an arms manufacturer. It was Tony realizing what he had done himself that pushed him into being Iron Man. His ethics didn't change again in that first film. They just strengthened. Hulk smash abomination, and symbolically the former directionless raging beast gets aimed to subdue a darker, more spiteful version of himself. Thor stops Loki from being destructive because he has learned through powerlessness and the company of normal humans, thinking hard about his place in the world, that a good king needs to not seek out war, and a good man should seek an end to conflict rather than encouraging it. Steve beats the Red Skull but never wavers in his conviction because what the Red Skull is offering is so clearly evil and antithetical to Roger's nature as the man who protects. Scott Lang had nothing to do with Darren Cross, but he certainly doesn't want to let a jackhole who threatens his daughter have potentially deadly miniaturization tech. Thor goes on to face down Hela, who makes him question his own venerated father, the land that he came from, and how it was made so powerful, based as it is on the blood at its foundations. He chooses to let the land die in favour of the people and completes his journey to kinghood. And Strange accepts his vast responsibility. It has nothing to do with making him more important or powerful or respected. He has to take himself out of the picture to do the right thing. And Mordo has nothing to do with this. And Caecilius is a lunatic zealot who simply takes himself out of the equation, allowing Dormammu to puppeteer him. In the face of chaos, he loses his grip on reality and sees no need for anything else, while Strange sees the need for a balance of order to keep it at bay. He realises this not because of any antagonist, but after empathising with the dying Ancient One, another flawed mentor like Odin and Howard Stark, who may have done some bad things in their time, but is trying to make amends. T'Chaka never got this revelation. It was down to his son to forge a new path. To do this, Black Panther takes on board what was done to Eric. He realises that this boy was left alone and fatherless, directionless, and powered only by anger. 
Both he and his cousin were trained to be weapons, duplicates of their fathers bent on continuing either rigid tradition or of overthrowing it. It is Eric's fierce picture painting of a world that Wakanda has ignored, one where people of colour are defenceless against colonial oppression, which allows T'Challa to meet anger with empathy and be the first to do something about the status quo, which has allowed Wakanda to lead the easy, and some might say selfish, path. In effect, Eric is the opposite of Obadiah Stane. While Ironmonger represented the worst version of himself that Tony had left behind, Killmonger represents to T'Challa the righteous anger of the people suffering because of his lack of accountability. Far closer to Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who lost their family because of Stark tech, but who never had the focus of rage to challenge him directly. They always needed Hydra or Ultron to direct them or Whiplash, whose father Howard Stark profiteered from the inventions of and left to die in obscurity. Or Tombs from Spider-Man Homecoming, who, like Peter, always gets told what not to do by Tony Stark and decides to continue doing his own thing anyway. And finally, Zemo, the man who loses everything because of the Avengers and then manipulates them into fighting one another and destroying the team from within. A man T'Challa less than a week before the events of this film prevents from taking his own life because he recognises that he himself had been consumed by anger over the murder of his father. He sees Zemo's path and the dead end it leads to, intercepting with both compassion and determination to see justice done. His arc was started there, and it reaches its peak here in his own solo story. These are all aspects of the same antagonist, the one the hero could be. The brilliance of the way Killmonger plays out and why the challenging of the hero directly correlates with his antagonist is that T'Challa doesn't destroy this shadow self only to then forget everything about him. He finds an even ground between Eric's rage and his own indifference to the outside world, a remit of global compassion from his entire country. It's important to note that Nakia showed T'Challa this part at the beginning and has clearly been pushing it for many years, but what Eric brings him is evidence and perspective that he can no longer ignore. I could pinpoint the exact moment when I stopped agreeing with him, mm -hmm. and it's in the middle of a sentence. When he's talking about what they're going to do after he takes a seat on the throne, we'll kill our oppressors. I'm like, okay, I'm not. I, I can at least understand that there's an argument to be had for violence being necessary toward liberation. It's not necessarily one I agree with, but it, there's an argument. And then he goes on to, and their children, and anyone who agrees with them. And that's the exact moment when I stopped being on board with him. But I was on board, at least in principle, up until that point. While T'Challa eventually does come to him with empathy, his first reaction is to threaten to kill him. Mm. I would kill you right there if I didn't know who you were. He says to him, it's a heartbreaking scene in many ways because I want T'Challa to say, I've just learned of you, cousin, and I'm sorry for what was done. Mm. Let's work on this together. But of course, then there's no third act, so... <laughs> Even if T'Challa agreed to the duel, had he just gone, all right, I agree to the duel on the condition that you stay here for three days and we talk before then so we see if I can change your mind. Like, because I, like, that, that, that is, I agree with you that that part of the problem there, and this is part of T'Challa's arc and part of um, 
his flaw, that the inherited flaws of the people who came before him, both his father and just all of his ancestors, and the way they decided to rule Wakanda built into him is he's not willing to budge either. Eric is not willing to budge on the our oppressors must die and glory to the new Wakandan Empire. T'Challa's not willing to budge on uh, you're an outsider and are a threat to the throne. He's he's not willing to meet him halfway and go, yeah, what was done to you is monstrous. I would like to try to make amends. And after that, you're not willing to, if you're not willing to see things eye to eye after that, then I'm going to kill you in a duel. Well, that's why he loses the, the duel yeah. is he's oh. not... Oh yeah, like he's not where he needs to be. It's it's you know again it is, I mean it's really dumb to bring up Rocky three, but it, there there are a couple emotional beats that like if narratively speaking you're not in the correct headspace to be victorious and to really believe in what you're doing, like he is absolutely questioning his actions, and it's because he knows he's not quite right. Like he's just just only now spoken to Zuri, found out the truth. He hasn't had the chance mm-hmm. to confront his father in the afterlife, which he only does because he loses the duel. Like, I mean, the the Killmonger is a great villain because he forces T'Challa to be a better king. I maintain part of why Winter Soldier is so good is um, it's one of the only ones where I felt like the villain holds up long term. And what this is, is it's this formula that I find works in a lot of fiction. Um, you can find it in anime, it's Ganner Oboji. In fantasy, you can find it in uh, <clears throat> New Century. Um, Thank but you. <laughs> I'm sure there's all the stuff that exists. Cough, plug, cough. The hero and the villain are arguments personified. The strength of the villain comes down to the strength of their argument. And the best villain hero clashes come from when the villain is not wrong logically, they're wrong with a capital W. We get this in Winter Soldier where Robert Redford's argument actually makes a ton of sense. And the movie is about explaining why we need to side with the hero because it understands that the villain isn't logically wrong. They've actually got a really solid point behind what they're saying. And Captain America Winter Soldier is just really good about how Steve's argument comes down to we can't do these things that way because that is the end of humanity. We have to trust in humanity and the movie's basically built up to explain why we should be siding with Steve and not with Robert Redford's character. This movie does something very similar in that Eric's argument is not logically wrong. In a lot of ways, it's also emotionally correct in a lot of directions. But the movie is set up to show you that what Eric wants is dangerous and just ultimately leads to the destruction of everyone. Like, there, there is no future in what Eric Killmonger and Jadaka sees. And this is personified, like we said, with the duel. The first duel, T'Challa has his power stripped away from him. Basically, their argument is t- takes place when they are both men, and that's all they are is just men, and this is when Eric wins, because that his argument holds up when we just think the way men think. The second fight they have is when they both have the powers, when they are at their best, and this is when T'Challa wins, because his argument is what we are when we are more than just the sum of our genetics, the sum of our culture, when we are more than men, when we are more than just a person. Uh, and his argument holds up when we are at our best, and that is why he wins. The first duel, T'Challa goes into the fight with a spear and a shield, because as a king, he understands you have to have the ability to defend and the ability to attack. Killmonger shows up with just two weapons. Very specifically, he has the spear, uh, the traditional weapon of his culture, and a sword. And while it is a very African sword, the sword is usually traditionally associated with the Western culture, the colonizers, as they say. So it's that thing uh, where all he has is aggression, and very specifically, it's, it's like the line from the second Planet of the Apes movie, all he learned was their hate. All he learned was how to fight like them. He didn't learn anything else from them. The movie goes on to also further subvert Eric's argument in the contrast between the two 
visions. We have T'Challa's vision where he is out on the open plain, surrounded by his ancestors, and he speaks to his father man-to-man as his current self. When Eric's vision triggers, first off, he's back in his apartment because he can't get away from this apartment. He can't get away from that moment. He is defined by that moment. But the moment his father shows up and speaks to him, he switches back to being a child because what his argument is the argument of a child. He is emotionally a child, and that is all he is. He is still not a man. And even once he does, for that one last line, switch to being the adult version of Eric speaking to his father in the vision, all he says is maybe they're lost. That's why they can't find us. And it's just the reaffirmation of I am carrying on what my father believed in, in other words, perpetuating the the sins of Wakanda just in a different direction. Eric is only a man in the sense of he's the adult version of carrying on his father's goals. He is not his own man the way T'Challa is. And some of that can be summed up by T'Challa got the privilege of being offered that opportunity. He was given um, the privilege of being able to be his own man, both by being royalty and both by being free, but also this idea that Eric made the choice not to move past this. He has he has made the choice to double down on this very childish argument, this argument that is wrong with a capital W, even if it's hard to logically point out the holes in it where it's like, and it comes down to this these two arguments of the way the world has been and the way the world should be. And T'Challa is firmly on the, the way should be, even if he has to learn it over the course of the movie, but that's fine. We're allowed to learn and change. I wanted to actually um, bounce something off of you because, um, Spencer, you mentioned him being, he's trapped in that moment. It's not just that he's trapped by that experience of finding his father dead and that moment defining him. He's literally trapped in the oppressive system that turned him into an imperialist. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ross talks about how he's doing what we trained him to do. So, yes, Killmonger has what he sees as, you know, a a way of throwing off the yoke of imperialism. He's just replacing it with imperialism. He literally says the sun will never set on the Wakandan Empire. He's very he's very misogynist. Um, he has very little respect for women, and that's contrasted very deliberately with T'Challa. So he is poisoned by his environment, his country, and the imperialist attitudes of his country. It's, it's literally trapped his thinking, and he can't get out of that space. And that's why that moment that, um, that Coward, you mentioned when he says, and their children, that's when he's very deliberately laid out this thing of this is not going to be a way of making amends for the sins of the past. This is just going to be more death and more destruction. It's just we get to have a say in it this time. Well, it's like he says, this time we'll be on top, and T'Challa at the end accuses him of, you have become them. Um, another bit of color story in the film, um, this is one of our villains here, and this is Ulysses Claw, the color blue, um, the color blue represented colonization. And who else wears blue throughout the first half of the film? Killmonger. He learned the ways of the colonizers so well, he only knows how to do what they do. This is also very much personified in that first duel, uh, the language he chooses. When Eric shows up to duel T'Challa, he doesn't say... You know, I've I've waited my entire life for this moment to free my people or to change the world. He says, I've waited my entire life this moment to kill you. And it's like this summation of, yeah, this is still all he is, is I'm just here for revenge. No matter what grand ideas I frame it in, this is all that matters to me. I think one one angle that you can look at that from as well is is not so much that his argument is that of a child, but his argument is that of a soldier. He's been a tool. He's been used by one 
uh, authoritative structure to achieve their ends. And now, although he's trying to replace them with his own plans, he's using their techniques and their methods. And the difference between the way he looks to make the argument and the way T'Challa looks to make it is that the difference between a soldier and a king, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or a soldier and a leader. Mm. Yeah. That's the key difference. Um, T'Challa... Like everything he thinks of is he knows there are people that are affected by this. There are civilians and just people who might not be directly involved in the conflict, but will be greatly affected by it. Whereas with Eric, it's just um, the action is what matters. Who cares about the actual ramification or the consequences? It's the bog standard black and white justice that doesn't work in real life mm, absolutely and a king or a leader has to think about that collateral damage that's going to be a really important part of how they make their decisions a soldier very particularly has to not think about the collateral damage because if they do they can't do their job yeah because um charlotte like even though he's part of being a king a ruler is being beholden to his people and it shows like in their society where he has a council that advises him um, even when he's out on missions he has like a his personal guard who is much more experienced and h- half the time has greater say in what happens in certain situations and um, every part of tradition is every now and again if people aren't satisfied with his with their tribe with their clan's rule they have a chance to um, subvert that and take over and instead it, it's opening up the chance for, like, we're not always going to be the rulers. Like, there's a perfect chance where if we have failed you in some way, somebody else can take over. And I, I noticed this time, too, the fact that it seems like a lot of the country, not not all or near all, but this is in front of a lot of Wakandan people. They're clearly, the Wakandan government is very transparent, the Wakandan public knows what their leaders are doing and why they're making the choices they're making and leading by example, you could almost say. Mm. One thing I wondered about that actually is is the, the size of the Wakandan nation because it, it seems very small. Um, and the the type of government that they have managed to maintain, that transparency, that, that honesty, that almost really personal connection between the the leaders and not not just the king but the the whole royal family as well and what the people need and what the people want i could be wrong but it strikes me that that's something that that can kind of only be maintained in a small society in a small nation yeah because yeah. you you've, you've still got to remember that this is still a union of is it five was it five different oh. tribes? Four tribes and the Jabari. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> counting in the um, the royal tribe as well. So that yeah, would so. make six altogether, yeah. Yeah, and it's an agreement because you got to remember, like, those tribes wouldn't have been that large to begin with. And mm. Sure, they've managed to um, grow over the years, but still it is, it, and it's still quite a solitary nation, so even though it has grown up the years, it wouldn't reach the level as like a huge it's probably like a metropolitan city rather than a full size of what we think of as a country. It's supposed to be roughly the size of New Jersey. And what what maybe two, three million people total? Maybe, yeah. <laughs>
One thing that I noticed about Killmonger is um, he sort of appropriates Wakandan culture or sort of almost Pan-African culture in many ways in order to prove his Wakandan bona fides. But it always comes off just a little bit off. So, for example, just before the fight with T'Challa, the first one, he breaks the spear so it looks more like um, Ikwe. I'm not exactly sure, but it's the Zulu short spear that was fundamental to how they built their empire and even held off the British for quite some time. And then he just grabs the mask. No, I'm just feeling it. Yeah. (laughs) The heritage aspect of it isn't as important to him until the very end when he sees what his father told him about how beautiful Wakanda is. He sees Wakanda as a tool, and he puts on the trappings of rulership of Wakanda to achieve his goals. And he never, he doesn't quite get that it's more than just a look and a feel. It's, there is a certain culture here that he is not quite a part of. That he is an outsider to. His the mode of his death, though, and and the fact that it almost comes as his choice, um, that he he decides now he's had enough with this fight, um, really got to me. And the the line about uh, I never thought a kid from Oakland would be here with you in this fairy tale, absolutely broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it goes back to uh, at that moment from the moment the spear goes into his chest, he almost completely drops the Killmonger thing. He switches back to being the scared child in Oakland who's suddenly in way over his head. And, like, he's... he's like I, The part that killed me was he's struggling not to cry through this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really obvious. And it's like, God, Michael B. Jordan is such a gift. But the thing of... um, Like, that thing where I couldn't tell if it was the actor, the character, or if it was, like, both... And the the it, how it feeds it how they how they both feed each other and uh, and then it leads into where he switches back to the the bitterness in his voice when he delivers the uh, death is better than bondage line of the bury me uh, and see where the uh, with my ancestors who jumped from the ships yeah. yeah yeah because they knew death was better than bondage yeah. oh <laughs> all of those moments from after the point where he gets stabbed with the spear are what elevates this character above Koba because he's very similar to Koba in um, uh, Drawn on the Planet of the mm-hmm. Apes who is an exceptional mm-hmm. villain uh, and, and, and a, a fantastic uh, opposition to Caesar and Rachel Ghoul in Batman Begins a very cold, anger-driven, logically right, emotionally wrong villain but Koba never never changes he will, he will fight, like he will deceptively pretend to Caesar that he's backing down repeatedly throughout Dawn but at the end he will just push and push and push until eventually he get he gets thrown to to his death and i think eric won audiences back over from that point onwards when the uh like because he does behave in an overtly cruel manner which is actually quite distasteful and when he says he, he wants all of the purple flowers destroyed that wanton level of not thinking at all about the future, even his own yeah. heirs at that point. Yeah. And then when he, uh, he's questioned on that, he chokes a priestess and says, you know, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Uh, and yeah, like, that's yeah. immediate, that's clearly designed to make us go, now this guy just woke up from a revelatory uh, vision quest and all he's got is still just that anger. Um, Another question. Do we think it's just a coincidence that Michael B. Jordan, known anime fan, hmm. is wearing an 
armor set that looks very familiar to <laughs> yeah. a certain yeah. a certain set of yeah. prince yeah. who's got some serious uh, imperialistic <laughs> tendencies. Okay, and I'm going to invoke my no anime clause here. Like you can talk about Vegeta <laughs> for all of six seconds. Go for it. <laughs> Actually, that's about it. It's just, there's some parallels to be drawn between the costume and the character. That's about it. We're, and it's unclear if it's on purpose. And time. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, Vegeta and very Dragon Ball Z it is indeed. So, um, so the, the very uh, any any more on Killmonger? Uh, because obviously we can come back to him if something occurs. But I do want to get uh, on to the other tribes. Just like a very small note, but I like a lot of the humor came from like Eric's like small lines at the most tense of moments like hello mm. auntie and hey, auntie. <laughs> hi cuz and like those yeah. those small little things that like are innocuous in a different context but in here are just outright hilarious mm. yeah. I, I'm just feeling it gets a laugh from every audience I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one final note that's just a weird thing I have uh, last night I saw this with my family my dad is a psychologist and while he's watching the movie and then we were in the credits waiting for for the stingers and i'm explaining a lot of what i've talked about today to them mostly falling on deaf ears Um, (laughs) but my dad suddenly goes huh that's interesting because and he basically went into eric's development and his behavior speaks to these following symptoms and he he listed off all the technical terms that i can't follow but he basically went like it's fascinating of like they they wrote his character of the yes this is exactly what happens to someone who has that kind of stunted growth emotionally because it also affects the actual physicality of their brain and it was just he was like and so he was very impressed with the writing of the this is exactly what happens to people in his situation and the the behavior he went on to showcase the aggression the anger the the actual lack of empathy the inability to form new emotional bonds where he clearly doesn't actually care that much about his girlfriend hmm. who I don't think he even gets a name, and I I think that's because he doesn't even care. But it's he that thing. Her. Yeah, he just in the face. <laughs> oh, and he he doesn't even he doesn't even hesitate really. Like he like he it do, it clearly doesn't phase him. But it's that thing where my dad was just pointing out as a psychologist, where he's like, yeah, this is what those people look like, and this is exactly what that behavior manifests as. Mm. Did he mention uh, avoidant attachment style? Yep. Mm-hmm. Thought so. <laughs> oh. My thoughts on Killmonger, actually, please. If it's cool, they have a little more. They have a little more of a personal layer. Um, oh yeah, please, please, that'd be perfect. perfect. Yeah, go for it. Obviously, throughout the film, we clearly understand Killmonger, his um, his plan, and how, in theory, he wants to free the oppressed people. You know, back in America. Well, I guess all over. That's a macro scale. I was thinking about it also on more of a micro scale, and I was able to apply it to sometimes how African-Americans, there are some of us who, like, for example, I have been fortunate that there are a lot of experiences um, that blacks in America have in terms of just how they grow up in um, the areas in which they live in those environments. And I've been fortunate to not necessarily experience all of those. And Killmonger and T'Challa represent sometimes that clash between some of us who have not had some of those experiences. So I, I kind of, I, I have a sort of a, a T'Challa type experience. And sometimes that rage that Eric feels, we, we know how the pressure from the outside, you know, those in power coming down on you. But then also there are those times where you are hoping for a, you know, a sympathetic hand from someone like you, Granted, they may not have experienced what you've experienced, but you were hoping that they 
could, you know, they, they can empathize with you. And sometimes, and I myself sometimes can be guilty of this, like T'Challa, people go through some things, you might not have gone through it, but you're kind of like, you know, I get, I feel you, but you know, what do you want me to do? And sometimes that can be the push even more, even though Eric has experienced all these things throughout his life, going back from that night in Oakland, sometimes the thing that pushes you just over the edge is when you find, like you said, now, granted, it seems like through the way he's presented, he probably wasn't going to listen if T'Challa had offered him um, a helping hand. But when he first arrives on Wakanda, they, they not exactly, you know, they, they still treat him as an outsider, even when he proves, you know, who he is and his lineage and they still treat him like an outsider that, that can sometimes be, it pushes them over the edge and it's like the point of no return, you know, when watching that. And while I get the larger parallels for it, and that's, that's a lot of the analysis that I took with, uh, with a lot of the characters, a lot of the, um, significance I see behind them are sometimes within the, the confines of uh, African-American, black American culture as well. And that's just what I took from uh, Killmonger and T'Challa's clash. I guess you could say a class battle, you know, here's this man who had, you know, had to fight for everything, couldn't get everything. Here's the other side who they have been fortunate to have everything. He comes to them and, you know, he still is rejected. And sometimes some of us can actually be guilty of, of something like that as well. I think that that's an absolutely fantastic point, Eric. And the, the uh, Oakland Outreach Centre at the end mm-hmm. kind of, um, it, it shows how that clash can result in that positive outcome of not pulling up the ladder and saying, well, we have these privileges and that's ours here you go, we we need to reach that down and bring this stuff to the people who haven't had that and could do with that inspiration. And, and having it on that small scale of Oakland and just bringing the ship to the park so that Shuri could show the boys the... the um, Bugatti uh, spaceship. The, yeah, <laughs> which is, I thought was fantastic. Again, a, a really nice little uh, micro version of what they're doing in the UN mm. and bringing Wakandan technology to the world as a I whole. I love that end sequence. I mean, mm. I don't want to jump ahead, but like... That they may as well turn around and look directly at the camera when they say, only fools build walls. (laughs) (laughs) T'Challa shows very much a very real struggle between the African disparity diaspora and the Af- and Africans as it stands hmm. it's a very real as someone who is from the diaspora rather than from African themselves it's a very rich place in terms of culture and history and a very violent place while everybody spread around, around the globe has a very evident struggle and an element of reaching towards it and often those two, those two cultures clash together in a very common way across various different cultures, probably via the slave trade. Like, even Brazil's probably the only culture that's bigger than African culture where they've had a similar kind of output. I've watched it three times myself, and that just keeps on resonating. It's just um, another layer to a brilliant movie.
That was the intro to the Marvel motion comic of the Black Panther limited series. Good luck getting that earworm out of your head now. Let's talk about the tribes. Where, where possible, talk about uh, what the uh, colours specifically mean. So you've got the Merchant River, Mining, Border, and the Jabari. I can list literally what each colour means. Please, John. Um, to correct myself, it wasn't the Panther tribe, the royal family is called. It's the Golden tribe. Ah. And they use the motif of black and purple and a continental symbol for the sun found throughout Africa. Mm-hmm. You've got the Border tribe, which is inspired by the Lesotho architecture and language and they use the motif of blue and wood mm-hmm. um you've got the river tribe um uses the motif of green and shells um the merchant tribe which was inspired by nigerian architecture and language and then you've got the jabari tribe wearing the furs and the wood to re- represent their naturalism and they also spoke a different uh dialect i think it's Yoru. niger congo yeah from uh, west africa in contrast mm-hmm. to the wakandans torsa uh, dialect from South Africa. If you've got any comic law knowledge, that uh, would be good, because usually with all of the Marvel movies, I go into the history of the character from the comic, and I have neglected to do that with this one. I might add a little bit of extra at the beginning. Uh, this was He was created by... Um, was he created by uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee for... Uh, and he was introduced in the Fantastic Four originally, wasn't he? Fantastic Four 58. That's yep. the one. Okay. He starts out sort of as an antagonist in the sense that he invites the Fantastic Four to the previously closed-off Wakanda Nation, and they get there and he immediately attacks them uh, in the first issue. The second issue, 59, we find out the reason why he was doing that is that he needs allies against Ulysses Claw, and that was his way of testing them. Mm-hmm. But it's really wonderful to see because uh, T'Challa is presented in this as being... Uh, as intelligent as Reed, uh, wealthy, gracious, you know, other than, you know, attacking people when they first show up as a test, he's a really gracious host, and he immediately becomes very close to the Fantastic Four, and it sort of builds from there. Hmm. And unfortunately, you didn't see a whole lot of him until the 70s when Jungle Action picked him up and Don McGregor's legendary run, Hmm. which was just super fantastic beginning to end and also amazingly progressive for the time. Black Panther didn't get his own titled book until Jack Kirby came back. Have you seen the the cover, the famous cover with him versus the Klan? That was part of Don McGregor and Billy Graham's run, and that was actually cut short because Jack Kirby was coming back from D.C. having just created the Fourth World stuff, and they wanted to do a big thing, the king is back, let's give him a book with a king, and they basically cut it short to give Kirby his own book where he could do whatever the hell he wanted on it, which is also a good run and just full of you know Kirby nonsense in the best sense of the word, but they had to sort of cut that plot short, and it wasn't quite as socially conscious as McGregor and Graham's run. Mm. Does anyone know whether the version of Wakanda we saw in the cinema is a refinement of something that's happened over the years or whether a lot of it was present in the original mythology? That comes... uh, Chris Priest did the very basic um, world-building there. It was then taken up by Reginald Hudlin, who is mostly a movie and uh, television producer. He wrote and directed the first House Party movie. Uh, He was a producer on Django Unchained, several episodes of The Boondocks. And he probably met Chadwick Boseman on the... He was a producer on Marshall. And Boseman uh, went to Hudlin's uh, run for inspiration on how to play T'Challa. 
but most of it is the current Tanahisi Coates stuff. That's where we're getting most of the Wakandan backs, what we see in this movie. Right. Yeah, no, Ryan Coogler specifically name-checked, like, I mean, he he apparently, he's he's a comics dude from, from back in the day, and he specifically sought out heroes that would sort of reflect him, and that's how he got turned on to Black Panther, but it wasn't until, you know, some of the more modern incarnations that he was really getting passionate about it, and then I know that he was specifically looking at Ta-Nehisi Coates' work to sort of really, really sculpt the version of Wakanda that he was trying to make here. Yeah, the Priest stuff, you could see some inspiration from it, but it's not... Chris Priest is a good writer, but he's really weird. He has a sense of humor, sort of like a 12-year-old who watches a lot of evening news. Um, <laughs> so all of his stuff is very dated and very much like somebody, a young kid, trying to make a joke, trying to make a topical joke. That being said, it still can be a lot of fun. But, like, Nakia and Okoye were the first two Dora Milaje. He introduced those characters. However, the Dora Milaje, as we know them now, that's all Coates. And it, this is much better, to be honest. Well, Tanahisi Coates, he is... What African country is he from? Do you know? He's African-American. Oh, he is African-American? Yes. Oh, okay, I didn't know. I believe he's from Cleveland. I'm not totally sure on that one. Oh, Okay. things I want to pick up on was um, uh, what they've done for the Jabari tribe and Mbaku um, taking away his terrible man-ape um, representation mm. from the comics and the way they've, they've translated it into you know, they're a tribe who were against the using of vibranium to further their further civilization and it, it, the ape thing actually comes from worshipping Hanuman the monkey god so they turned that uh like pretty quite badly racist uh theme from the comics into a full actual cultural background for this character and what one of my favorite moments in the film is when you get to see their architecture mm-hmm. in stark contrast to wakanda where they've they've been up in the mountains they've built these massive like wooden architecture like they've managed to thrive even being outside Wakanda being so close and in their mind might is right in many ways like relying on technology has made the other tribes weaker but they're still um, they still hold a lot of similar values to the rest of the uh, Wakanda um, civilization and I, I like to mention it piggybacking on that is the fact that it really it's a big contrast between he and Killmonger because, yes, he would like to run Wakanda, but he himself, he still has enough respect and enough awareness of Wakandan tradition that he does it within their system and accepts the judgment. When he is defeated, he accepts said judgment. And he is a leader because at that moment where he's lost, he knows that if he wasn't to give up and this went ultimately to the to his death, he would be leaving his people without a leader at a time where they still need him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that naturalism that you talked about, Jerome, with the, the uh, design aesthetic representing that with the, the wood and the fur, I think that kind of gives them this feel of a, a really important part of 
the the core of Wakanda, the the country, the tradition yeah. being a really key part of the the kind of spine and the backbone of them as a nation um that that this tribe is not in opposition to the other four they are a part of it and and t'challa goes out of his way to make it clear that the jabari are still a part of their nation and a really important part too because that that reliance on the vibranium is absolutely something that could be their downfall if they issued everything else that's strong about their uh, their nation They've existed in a balance for for all of this time, and um, while I mentioned that the the this series, this one film, kind of upends both James Bond and uh, uh, Batman and kind of kicks them into the mud, it almost makes the fight to get Idris Elba to play James Bond is like it, it's less important now. Like we've got this like even better version, and if Idris Elba has to be the pig that James Bond has always been, it's going to be less cool than this anyway. You know, even if, if James Bond was played by a woman and if they just play it like Atomic Blonde and she's dead inside, it's going to be depressing to watch a woman do what Bond does. But, it's depressing to watch anybody do what Bond does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the uh, variety of tribes and the, the, the difference between the, the super advanced tech of uh, um, Shuri and uh, the uh, Jabari tribe... It kind of feels like they're also doing Star Wars and Lord of the Rings as well, and making both of them like super vibrant, and they they mesh in this balance that Wakanda exists in. Oh uh, yeah, Winston Duke as uh, Mbaku uh, ended up being like this sort of sleeper hit like character that everyone yeah. walked out the cinema going like he was awesome. He was incredible. Yeah, he also got Are the biggest gone? laugh in the film as, as as far as I can remember. I didn't catch it all on a laughometer, but the whole you know I'm just kidding. We're vegetarian. That man <laughs> put the house down. I only know him from one thing previously before. He was in um, Person of Interest. Um, he was playing a very a, a very typical kind of... He was a gang leader, but a very smart gang leader. But when I saw on the screen, I was like, okay, what's he going to bring? And he just brought just a little bit of levity and a really strong presence as essentially the staunch traditionist as well as, as um, the character's accent being different to everybody else's. Mm. So he had a very kind of hulking presence, but when you sat him down, he was like, nah, I'm not really like that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, it's one of the things this movie keeps doing. Like, these are people, like, yeah, he might be the sometimes opposing leader of one of the tribes, but he still ha- has like a normal life where he spends time with friends and family he's not mm. always so self-serious compare him to Killmonger in the sense that both of them fell, both of them were in essentially abandoned by the Wakandan throne um, uh, Kill- Killmonger literally was abandoned and M'Baku says that the Wakandans have not visited for hundreds of years Jeez. the Jabari lands which is technically part of their country and they didn't. Uh, King of Wakanda has not gone to visit them in that long, mm. and you can sort of see that it, it reinforces the theme of the film that isolationism leads to worse problems. It doesn't protect you from problems. Mm. I would say as well that uh, that comparison between uh, Mbaku and Killmonger gives you that element of the the Jabari were abandoned, but with with autonomy and choice 
they, you know, they had everything they needed around them to do what they needed to do to set themselves up and, and keep themselves going with the with their yeah. own culture. Killmonger, on the other hand, was abandoned in an environment where his autonomy and choice were taken away. He wasn't told who he really was, or you know, he was he was kept away from all of that, um, and and put in an environment where his choices were severely restricted. And I think that kind of, in a in a fairly low level way, gives you that difference between being without that resource and backup is not necessarily fatal if you have the freedom to make your own decisions and, and do what you want to do with the resources that you do have. Mm-hmm. I saw um, some, some, in fact, it was uh, Diamanda Hagen on Twitter described um, the Jabari as basically the Wakandan Scottish. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> One of the things I appreciate about Ryan Coogler as a writer, because, I mean, he also co-wrote the screenplay, and it's easy to see the visual flair that he brings to it, but he's also a, a really smart storyteller. And if you look at M'Baku as, like, the the sort of, like, coalescence of this, he serves a very purely functional purpose at the very beginning of the movie. And if M'Baku never came back, it wouldn't feel, you know, like that was a wrong choice to make. It's like, oh, okay, this is where T'Challa cements his power okay that's a functional story beat but then what kugler does is he'll bring back these functional things until they feel not just like functional parts of a story but like natural parts of a world Mm -hmm. which i think is part of why people are feeling like oh my god this feels like lord of the rings this feels like star wars they're all these things are being combined familiar things but combined in a different way it's like you have a purely functional action scene with a train because that's kinetic just by nature but the underlying symbolism of that is it's literally an underground railroad that they're fighting on. You have yeah. the you you have the the hero and the villain on a precipice, but instead of the hero throwing the villain off the precipice, as happens in basically every other movie where that you know visual landscape is provided, it's he brings this person up. He literally lifts his his previous adversary up so that he can experience some sort of like spiritual. Uh, spiritual moment mm. uh, like I, I just really appreciate Kugler as as a writer and and that's that's something I kept seeing crop up with all these characters is like these characters could have just been functional like Ross could have just been the same kind of you know dweeb that he was in Civil War but instead he keeps coming back until he's a person one more thing before we talk about Ross that I've been uh, meaning to say on uh, uh, Mbaku there's a, a little moment that I think is my, maybe one of my favorite bits of physicality in the entire film. Uh, it's when uh, T'Challa has asked his family to leave so he can just have a quick one-to-one with M'Baku. And when they're alone, M'Baku, who's been sitting on the throne, presiding over them, being very threatening and ooh, 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 and, and, and then sort of you know messing with them and then sending them away. And like, yeah, I'm being magnanimous. He has this uneasy shift to his body and he looks like a little kid who's like, I know I've been naughty. And <laughs> like just the whole, you know, challenging the king. And he, like, he just he's feeling like, yeah, come on, tell me now that I shouldn't have challenged you. But I, mean, I could be reading way too much into it at that point. But uh, he just he just seems a little bit uneasy. And then um, the, the fact that T'Challa was able to reach out to him obviously cements their relationship for the end. I think that was more of um, he was uncomfortable about like having to thank him for not allowing me to take things too far in our competition. It wasn't so much him challenging Kim. It yeah. was more the fact that he 
he stopped uh, the th- things from getting too far because he's and he said to him at that time says your people need you still mm. and like he, obviously he's seen that and he's seen what happens when a good leader is gone in the Condon situation it's sort of like yeah I I I saw I can see just how bad it would be if my people were left without me at that time. So it was more about like having to admit that he was wrong in that situation, having to thank him. Yeah, which is unusual for him. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that was a fantastic performance uh, in in a, a dozen fantastic performances. There aren't any weak uh, weak links here. I, I came out of the film feeling like Ross was there a real reason for him to be there because like, he's not really the Harry Potter character that gets introduced to Wakanda uh, at the beginning. And so that they can, they can then explain it all to him. Like we know at this point, we're like, I'll catch up Ross by the time he, he actually gets to Wakanda. And uh, at the end, it felt like he was going to die when that countdown was happening. And he was like, Oh, I'm just going to run away at this point. Luckily I survived that particular thing. I I think for me, what he represented, um, and I'm not, comparing him to um, Steve in Wonder Woman exactly in terms of character Mm. depth or quality but that role of there is a place for you in this story, it's as support it's in support, you you can be here that's absolutely fine but you don't, you know, there's there's no need to take centre stage, you can be valuable in a, Mm. a backup role also I think it's they need support specifically they need his expertise in how to come to reveal themselves to the rest of the world. Yeah, there needs to be a conduit. I'd say connections yeah. rather than expertise, but yeah. And someone to okay, explain who enough. the hell Killmonger is certainly helped as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Also, yeah. I think he, he serves a purpose in the sense that he reinforces a major motif of the film, which is that giving respect encourages respect uh, particularly his first discussion with Shuri where at first she is very standoffish toward him and then he starts appreciating her work starts talking about the maglev and what he likes about it and that gets her to open up mm. yeah it also led to the line that made me crack up the most in the whole film which was oh great you brought me another broken white boy to fix <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We could talk well, like, about Shuri now as well, if you'd like, because she is she might be my favorite character. Mm-hmm. She's mine. I like the thing going around that everyone's saying it's like, who's your favorite Disney princess, Shuri of Wakanda? <laughs> when it comes to Ross, much more in this movie, Ross feels much more to me like a diplomat than a spy, which is what he is in the comics, and he feels much more like he's clearly very. He says he's not a very trusting individual, but. If he's been a diplomat, it makes a lot of sense that he's probably lived in numerous other cultures. You know, he comes to Shuri very much just, I'm a person, you know, wow, what what is this you have? And I'm just a person, let's just chat. Which I think that's kind of the core of diplomacy is, let's put aside for just a second, you know, whatever baggage we have and just talk like two people. Hmm. And Shuri's the first person that he doesn't talk down to in the movie, which is... A kind of yeah. a kind of notable development for him because he is very well. I mean, he's a jackass. Like when you first meet him, because he's talking down to everyone. He's very 
I mean, he's very American imperialist in that sort of way that is like, look, I'm the global superpower. I know what's better. I did you a favor. And I'm very much with Okoye. And if he touches you again, I'm going to impale him to that desk. But, <laughs> but, but then he does, he does have that sort of sea change. And it's, it's that the first time you see it really take hold is with Shuri. And then by the end of the movie, his big hero moment isn't, you know, flying a ship. It's sitting down and shutting up. While someone else is doing something, no, just just sit down, shut up. You did shut up, sit down. Yes, right there in the back, you're fine. Don't say anything. That's being a good ally right now, and, and I think that's why he's important. Is <laughs> because sometimes we need to be reminded to sit down and shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very relevant that the the American representative is is he literally the only white person in the movie besides the UN scene? Except the Ulysses Claw. Of course. Claw. Except for Claw, who is the the obvious like just stealing from the black people. But um uh, Claw, yeah, if that, we can take a quick side road, Claw can be like sort of done in like in relatively quick time. He's one of the oldest uh, Black Panther uh, villains, and I think mm-hmm. that they looked the at Killmonger. Oh, the oldest. They looked at Killmonger. Yeah, because he was in that Fantastic Four episode issue, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. They looked at Killmonger. They looked at what they were doing with the general film. They looked at the extent of what Ulysses S. Claw could represent. This crazy you know, nervous tick, murderous thief who might also be a mad scientist and thought, this is not a character we really want to expand on. So they had him as this sort of comedy threat. But that was awesome! And then they (laughs) killed him. I made the train! Look! (laughs) But they didn't just kill him, like, you know, accidentally or have um, T'Challa be part of that. It was Killmonger killed him to show, look, I'm going to climb over your corpse to get to what I need to get to. Yeah. He uh, got brings him back in a bag. Yeah. So Andy Serkis is clearly having a whale of a time. He's like, I don't have to wear yeah. CG prosthetics for a change. This is great. We, we, were, we were watching this movie the very first time, and I leaned over to my friend and go, the world just needs more Andy Serkis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a treasure. I actually, his kill, I agree that there's nothing more his character can offer, but I kind of feel like killing him off and basically depriving us of more Andy Serkis is actually one of the things I hold against this film. Of like, I, yeah. I, I do... I, I, it's Marvel. They can bring back anyone. They can bring back Killmonger. They could, yeah. they could. I'm actually very proud of them for not doing that so far. But it it is a thing. Of, like I said, I think thematically you're right in that. What the hell else can like Claw? They explore everything there is to explore with him. But it's just he's such a delight for every second on screen and like everything he does. And like like Circus has clearly turned him into a full fledged character. It's. It's not a particularly deep character, but he's inhabiting every inch of that character. And so it was just a shame to be like, oh, he's dead? Oh, okay. I think the arm as well is something that kind of sticks out for me, no pun intended. Um, just in the fact that you've got Bucky's brief appearance here and that the fact that he no longer has that attachment. They both have elements of you've got an appendage that you think is useful to you, but it actually represents how bad you've gone. Hmm. Yeah. In the comics, eventually Wakabi gets a cybernetic left arm, and um, they didn't do that in this because I think enough people had missing left arms in this movie. (laughs) But uh, if you look at his costuming, you'll notice that his left arm is almost always either covered 
or his clothes are such a way that it looks like it's being excluded from the rest of his body. Mm. And Shuri, let's just <laughs> um, aside from performing a key function of making um, T'Challa seem like a real person, like someone who could get the piss taken out of him by his sister. Uh, she has this uh, incredibly empowering, like, you know, I had no idea who Shuri was when I created the character of Harry Arlington, who, from whom all the super steampunk tech in uh, New Century stems. So then I was watching her develop on screen and I was like, I should be kind of mad, but I'm really happy to see this character up on screen and everybody loving her like this. So it's, it's, she's, she's different in personality uh, enough for them to, for it not to look like I'm fucking copying. But um, the fact that she has this like youthful, not really respecting anything <laughs> going on, that it, it, it holds her in, in a nice contrast to the very stoic uh, T'Challa. Some, sometimes it's not that T'Challa is boring, but he can't be all that you know sparky or interesting. He has to do the serious thing. So surrounding him with all of these vibrant characters who can present this like four-way ethical bind for him to constantly be in where they're assailing him with you should do this you should do this and like they don't all necessarily gel that makes for a fan like it makes for utilizing the support cast in a way the original kenneth branagh thor film did not insofar as the warriors three plus sif plus heimdall (laughs) didn't really challenge thor to do anything other than what he was doing in the first place Mm. i'll tell you what she she kind of puts me in mind of actually is uh coulson in Iron Man 2. The, yeah. I will tase you and watch Super Nanny while you dribble into the floor. Basically, yeah. as long as she's in her lab, she has this air about her of there is no need for me to feel threatened or importuned upon by anyone mm. because I have at least four things in this room that could reduce you to a gurgling heap on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I have such a crush on Shuri. I, I Understandably. love her so much. She is so snarky, you know, and she's not afraid to get her hands dirty. She's super smart. She's super capable. And she's a badass to boot. And she even has, like, this this almost completely visual character arc put into the film where she's she's already a very clearly defined person in terms of personality but her first sort of like miniature conflict with t'challa is you know hey you don't need to improve on this stuff this stuff is already good you know and so like her thing is kind of like sort of proving herself and proving her ideas you know they continue that with her showing him the suit and is like this is your design yeah my design it's it's old it's 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 you know it's outdated and and you have her going from just being the person who's fiddling to someone whose gadgets he takes into the field and then takes her as backup all the way up to she is physically in the field and directing someone else in her lab. She never has like the big, you know, she never has like a Disney princess. I want song where she says, I just want to like prove my technology and, and prove myself and, and prove myself in the field and all this. But you see all of this, all of this happening anyway, because you see her interact with her brother. You see her talk to Ross about what she is doing. You see, um, even M'Baku insulting her and saying, you know, like you have this child who has no respect for the and I mean, he's not wrong that she's a little bit abrasive in terms of culture stuff, but she is also very, very smart and really wants to show that she's like earned her place 
in this dynasty of warrior scientists. And and she's got all of that in the movie without ever actually saying, this is what I want. You just see her and see her do it and then accomplish it. Well, she doesn't really have anybody to compete with except herself. She isn't trying to beat anybody except her last version of whatever it was she made. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, that I think is something that I would like to see her have as the, the movies progress and as she turns up in, hopefully, fingers crossed, many future Marvel movies. Um, mm-hmm. But but to have that professional rivalry with someone who will push her to be better and better and better still um, than she is now, I think she deserves that. I think she's earned it. And does it, did anybody else love the fact that her main weapon when she goes into that final fight is pe- little little cat paws? Yes, the little cat faces. <laughs> it kind of it, it looked, yeah, it looked like something like Thundercatish, and actually the, yeah. the giant <laughs> panther carved into the side of the mountain. I'm like, that's kind of cat slayer. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. I put a cat slayer in New Century as well. Yeah, I may be developing like some of the greatest technology in the world, but mm. you do know there's a theme to everything that I do right now. Yeah. <laughs> that's all doing style. And I love that little sort of like the headdress she's got with sort of under the chin. She's got like a little cat's jaw thing. Like just a little bit of a hint that she might end up putting on a Black Panther costume. She will end up putting on a Black Panther costume at some yeah. point. Does anybody want to bet that her YouTube history is just funniest cat videos? No. I think it's just T'Challa looking like an idiot whenever he has to Delete that footage. It's also, yeah, I was going to say, it's one uploaded video of T'Challa getting tossed across her lap. <laughs> My favorite line of hers uh, was when she's talking about the Kamoyo beads um, mm-hmm. that he used, and she's saying, just because it works doesn't mean it can't be improved. Mm. She, of course, is talking about Wakanda, but she's also talking about the world at large um, mm. and America and particularly countries that have thrived on white supremacy. Mm. Yeah, they work, but we can do better. And also the Marvel formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of lines in this movie and it's that is one of them because she's almost looking directly at the camera. She's looking slightly off to the side. But um there's a lot of lines and moments in this movie that you could silently finish with America or white people or you know, insert established order of that of your choice. And yes, it's meant to be a lot of them are directed at Wakanda, but it's like as as uh, as the idiot so handily pointed out, Wakanda isn't real, but it stands for something. Mm-hmm. And you can insert a lot of things into what it could stand for. The following is an excerpt from the audio drama of Arlington, a book I wrote in 2016 about the African-American family that founded the first national intelligence agency. The daughter, Harriet, here is one of the heads of the research and design division. She's voiced wonderfully by Loretta Saylor. You can also hear Matt Wardle as Thomas Edison, myself as Nikola Tesla, and Spencer Lee, the guest on this very podcast, as Major Frank Butler. Spearhead here is a veritable miracle of design. He can outrun horses. It is not shielded. This craft is vulnerable. How long do the batteries last? Eh? I always love this moment. About 30 minutes, but when we have recharging stations at set points throughout America, we... Uh, Mr. Edison, you really should put some gloves on if you're going to... Who cares about speed if you're dead in the road and have to get horses to drag you to the nearest recharging station? 
Stillborn can do 100 miles with a full fuel carriage. But it would take you so long, you may as well just ride in on your steed in a full medieval suit of armor. Honestly, who cares about a tank so heavy that no amount of horses would be able to pull it? Cable, sir. Watch your hands. Tessa, you shut yourself up in there and think all your thoughts while the rest of us are working our... Jumping Jesus Christ! I did warn you. They're both wonderful for their distinct and intended jobs, gentlemen. You should be very pleased with yourselves. <laughs> I am. He is. Now shall we turn ourselves to this third work of genius? Did you build this one, miss? Yeah, sh- yes. She's my baby, but I mean... Ah, yes. The jack of all trades. Good sir. Do come back to me when you're ready to talk about mass production and how we can all become astonishingly rich. She's better than the pair of them put together, right? She sure is. Let me show you. She's fast. Not as fast as Spearhead, but pretty fast. And she's stronger, too. Look here. We got these ceramic plates threaded throughout the whole interior. Each one is coated with a chemical resin I call stone spring. It's tough and non-conductive. And can stop a bullet, but way lighter than steel. Best thing for shielding. She pulled aside the hatch and disappeared inside, talking fast and gesturing faster. As I stepped up into the train carriage-sized body of the ship, I breathed deeply and was lost in admiration. While Steelborn favored utility and spearhead sumptuousness, the interior of this one was part workshop, part kitchen, part bedroom, part bunker. Every inch had been carefully crafted and loved, and there were clever, folding panels everywhere which opened out into new and different features. Here, let me turn her on. She slid her hand down behind a cylindrical furnace and gently pulled at what must have been a concealed lever. The ship purred into life around us, and the resonant sound of her heart was at once far less as aggressive or as unstable as her respective brother's. Harry unlatched the grate and let me see inside. A golden fire cage played warm orange light over the hexagonally plated walls. Welcome aboard, Steamheart. Oh, Harry. She is a beauty. I've got her balanced just right. The main source is the furnace here. It's a steam engine reconfigured using Sterling's regenerative principle. That keeps the energy exchanging back and forth, although there's still some loss. It was safer that way. This is the regulator. We got heat shielding with more stone spring, so she's not too heavy and won't explode on you. And we got the flywheel here as secondary propulsion and a speed booster, or if you want to go off-road. You keep the rear carriage well stocked with coal or wood, which you can refill along the way. She'll make every shovelful of fuel last as long as possible. There's a stable box at the back. You can keep a horse in for scouting, ensure you never get stranded. And if you run out of fuel altogether, you can hook up a full six horses to the front. So long as there's trees for the fire and water for the tank, or grass for the horses, she'll get you there. Arlington is available on Bandcamp right now, priced at $12.
Okay, so question for the group uh, Wakabi, uh, Daniel Kaluuya from uh, uh, Get Out. I went through Honest. the entire film, like li- bearing in mind what Kermode had said, like understanding where everyone's coming from with that. And I was like, I get where Wakabi's coming from. He, he was not so much over the line, but like he was doing things which were shameful in the last fight, but I could see why he did it. I come out of the cinema and check, and everyone fucking hates him. <laughs> oh, no, I. No, yeah, okay. I okay. Yeah. Go everyone else first. But no, yeah. not me. Honestly, uh, Wakabi might have. I, I think as far as uh, thematics go, Wakabi was my favorite character. Ah, um, good. Like you said, you you got where he was coming from. Um, in preparation for this podcast, I was trying to make like a sort of um, sort of a little guideline for the Killmonger uh, Gambit, his scheme. And where each of the characters, because I think that each of the characters kind of fit in as a different degree of Killmonger's um, scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, when you know, Killmonger is obviously the one extreme. When we get to Nakia, she's like the other extreme. I see Wakabi as like the second to last, not as extreme as Killmonger, but you get where he's coming from because. In a way, to me, he kind of represents, I'll say, how America felt um, after 9-11. So his, he, he thought, it, you know, he thought his country, you know, they couldn't take us. Nobody can do anything to us. Um, Claw comes in and, you know, he steals vibranium and he kills a lot of their citizens, you know, including his family. His first reaction is after that happened, he more than anything does not want to see that again. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about him thematically was that that type of character with that type of um, ideology almost could just about be easily swayed because there, there comes a point where it's like, okay, well, this guy seems to be off the wall, but he's about as close as I can get to what I want. And Mm -hmm. what I want, more than anything, what I want more than anything is sa- is safety for my country. He's not wrong for wanting that, but when you see that there's this person who clearly isn't, no matter what he says, he whatever, no matter what he says, his the his interests are that are supposed to be in the best interest of everybody else. It turns out it's really not. You know, it's it's not really. You know. Killmonger was never going to be satisfied once he if he got if his plan went through he was never going to be satisfied with what he did and then with you know with what you know he wanted to happen if Wakabi had continued with that let's just say his plan went through um he'd be living with that sort of regret I'm uh, sorry I, I, I'm sorry if I'm like head cannoning things mm-hmm, um, it's just it's, it's just the just the best way I could uh just the best way I can make it work and but that's that's what spoke to me for him as uh, like I said, as my favorite character, I get that desire. Your people were hurt. And the first thing you want is to make sure that never happens again, mm. but you're aligning yourself with this person who he says, he got your interest at heart. The truth is he really doesn't. And he ultimately never would. I think Wakabi is a good representation of sort of what America is kind of dealing with right now. Mm. Um, and that's just yeah. what, that's what spoke to me on uh, when I, you know, when I just see his character and I get why, like I get exactly why people said they hated him, but I got his, like I said, I get his plan is, but there's a lot of people in America right now who they made a choice and now 
they kind of feel they got to stick with it, even though they know they're wrong. Mm. And I think that they, they keep him the right side of sympathetic in that sense because as you say you you always understand why he's motivated to make the choices that he does and I think one of the most important elements of of his arc and his story is the fact that at the end that hand is extended to him to come back and Daniel Kaluuya is so good at selling every beat that he has in terms of making an internal decision without actually externalizing it via dialogue. Mm. Uh, he I mean you can you you obviously know that he's a great actor if you've seen this or especially Get Out, but the the scene where he there's two scenes where he feels very much betrayed by T'Challa when he when T'Challa comes back and he thinks they've got Claw and he realizes, oh, nothing is changing. And he, he goes from being, you know, very warm and inviting and excited to, to very cold and distant and standoffish. And then when he brings in Killmonger, you'll notice that he's the one who delivers the ring. He knows the truth already. And he's watching everyone else's reaction. And, you know, T'Challa's not the one who explains everything. Like, and he, and he, you know, he's expecting someone to tell him the truth. And you've got, you know, this group of people that just he feels like I can't trust this this structure that I used to trust. I can't trust my best friend anymore. And this guy is an unknown, but he's an unknown who is at least delivered in a way that those who I used to trust did not. Hmm. And Daniel Clue is really, really good at just selling that without saying a single word. So, I mean, I, I can hate his actions and his character can have like hateful, you know, things about him. But I mean, that's kind of what I love about his character too, is that you can kind of hate him, but also very much understand his actions at the same time. Mm. And, like he, and one of the key things you've got to remember is Makabe is exactly the sort of people that Eric was trained to um, subvert. He's the definition of the person that he wanted to find when he dragged Claw's body um, to the outskirts of Wakanda. Because the only reason he was with Claw is because he knew that was someone that um, Wakanda wanted dead and brought back. And he knew coming back with this war trophy in some way would get the people who would be disillusioned or have problems with the current rule to side with him and Wakabe like was at the was in the exact like position and mindset to uh, be affected the most by Killmonger and the fact that it also brought to light as you said uh, the covering up and murder of uh, a, a prince a, a brother of the previous king like I as as we keep saying it's clear what his motivations were it's just and like i find it hard to like the fact that he stopped before going like taking it to like to the precipice of no return like does help redeem in my eyes yeah claw's body is almost like his trojan horse that's what gets him in the door Mm. um and that's that there's a point where it seems like that is the only purpose he serves for him. Um, but one of the other things I liked about Wakabi is the way that his his standpoint is offset against Akoya's. And they they make a similar decision for very, very different reasons. And hers is for a principle that she sticks to right up to the point where she sees that that's not serving the greater good anymore. Mm. 
and his is a, a personal response, not a not a principle that he sticks by no matter what, but a an anxiety and a need to feel safe again. And I, I think that's partly how they um, they keep that sympathetic. I loved how they um, pulled off Akoya here. If we can move on to her as well. Um, The the dedication she shows the whole way through the first two acts. Like, you know exactly where she's coming from, how much she would give, and, and how much she cares about this. So that when... She is told to continue to serve the throne with a different uh, uh, monarch on it. And then when she uh, has that altercation with Nakia, you know completely the conviction of her words when she says that. You're not thinking, why are you doing this? Obviously, he's a wrong'un. And it's like, you know, that whatever you could say is not going to circumvent her sense of duty. Mm, yeah. And, and her line about, I, I serve that throne no matter who sits in it, mm is without being as you know is a perfect explanation for how she responds and why she responds that way those two are either i'm guessing married they never make that explicitly clear but they are yeah they they are loves what yeah whatever whatever that entails and it it's part of why i did find wakabi sympathetic because she clearly loves him Mm. He's got to be worth something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's not vouching for just anyone. Yeah. And also because I'm like, I, I I feel a bit sorry for him to have to go home to her. After this, I'm you like, mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm my like, love. Oh, <laughs> yeah, someone's going to be sleeping on the vibranium <laughs> couch. <laughs> yeah. Someone's sleeping with the rhinos. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you actually remind me of uh, two things one again going back to how I love that uh, Ryan Coogler knows that he doesn't have to hammer home certain details He, the trust he has in his audience is immense mm. because they oh, state yes. the my love once at the very beginning of the movie they never come back to it in fact they're in the same room arguing with each other at those council meetings and, the, and that never comes up again mm. only when she stands in front of the rhino and it stops again and do you go oh right those two are in a relationship and I don't need the reminder because it mm. totally holds up one of my friends who saw this there's the bit at the end where it's the the uh, would you kill me my love for Wakanda without question he, he was like that's the end of that relationship and I remember thinking no I don't think it is because I think they both understand that it's like we're fighting for what we believe in, and if we didn't understand that about each other, we wouldn't have been in love in the first place. Like, yeah, there's going to be some talking uh, after this. <laughs> there's going to be, like, like they're going to be mad at each other, but I actually totally see those two, like, like the, the idea of them not, this, like, this not healing and becoming a new strengthening of a relationship. Like, that was always, to me, like, yeah, that's where this goes. And yeah, they had a disagreement about this, and it was a dangerous one and a painful one, but it's not the end of these two because they're stronger than that, both the relationship and each individual. Can we talk about costumes as well? Because I don't think we've really summed up quite how amazing these things look. The Star Wars thing comes in again because when they did the prequels, 
Like the the original Star Wars films, they kind of like they keep it everyone into military fatigues. But in the prequels, they go way overboard to, to give specifically Amidala these crazy costumes. But it's all in this horrible, sterile environment where nothing is real anyway. With this, it feels like these costumes have sprung from the landscape and through the people, and they're blossoming in this in in this way. They've like it, this is a film made for 4K TVs to just show off to the your friends. Level of detail is yeah. absolutely outstanding and again the 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 color the materials shoe in for the oscar the, oh, absolutely what Vibrant. Did I say? It, this this thing is cleaning the technicals yeah across the board as far as i'm mm. concerned next year There's and the koya's red dress i want one <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one guy from the river tribe with the lip play yes it's, it's, it's stunning and you as fuck just like yeah. sitting there with one leg crest over hands in his lap with the lip plate like they got him to talk a little bit as well just to say you know for all of you people at home wondering uh, can that guy even talk yeah he can talk there was this ripple that went through the cloud, crowd as soon as people saw it and it was kind of this should we should we titter we probably shouldn't titter and uh, I was like yeah no you shouldn't It's this is culture motherfuckers but yeah they, they, they managed to get you know, a lot of like very authentic African designs into those costumes. It, it never felt like like stagey and 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 showoffy, and uh, it never felt like anything was a was ever less than carefully researched. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I read an yeah. is the key there, really. Yeah. Yeah. I read an article with the costume designer who was talking about all of her influences going in. And how you know modern African designs in general are very cosmopolitan, and they tend to draw from each other mm. very heavily. So she wanted to do the same thing with Wakanda and draw from other countries. What's you know coming out of them now? Because Wakanda would, even though they're isolationist, keep up with the times and fashion most likely. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I, I saw a, an interview with somebody who worked on um, the hair design as well, and they said they they yes. specifically wanted to have um, the, everybody have natural hair, and mm. so you know n- particularly uh, none of the the women have uh, relaxed or, or straightened overly straightened hair. Western looking yeah. hair. Yeah. yeah. Um, one one of the things that I really liked is the um. You could see the progression and like intersection of tradition versus um, progression. Mm. With like you, you've got the uh, traditional uh, ritual of um, the combat to see, see whether the king stays in um, power, and you get to see all their traditional um, tribal garb. Mm. And then you go to cut to the council meeting, and you've got their more uh, recent, up-to-date garb. Stuff, you get yeah. to see like how over time you, you get to see that. Uh, a, like a sense of progression of their fashion over the years. Mm. Yeah, the cultural, um, traditional costumes are very much reflected in their, their modern mm. day wear, which was a really good, really good aesthetic. Side note: and the, when, Oh, carry on, carry on, sorry. And and when they go down to the actual Wakanda, like street level market, you see, you get to see some of their like the the bags and the stars and like as someone who's been to like a like. I've, I've been to like Kenya and Ghana and markets and you get to see sort of it's it's literally like taking that and just bring it to a, ut- a utopian civilization so you've got the the same layout as a traditional market just in a utopian city mm. and 
I love it feels it feels very casual. Mm. Uh, the whole thing, like T'Challa, the king, is just out on the streets. Granted, his guards are with him, mm. but you know, if if a citizen wanted to come up and talk to him, they could. Yeah. He's right there. It's it's not really costume related, but just they are clearly trying to be very accessible to their people. Mm. Yeah, if Ruth Carter doesn't get an Oscar nomination, I am going to be very, very, very upset mm. because this yeah. is. I, I mean, these are I, I, people have referenced, you know, Star Wars and, and Lord of the Rings and the, the Lord of the Rings thing in terms of the costuming feeling real and culturally representative mm. and a part of a world that exists and not just stagey. Like, I haven't seen something with this much variety mixed with believable texture since the Lord of the Rings films. It's that scale of production mixed with that care to every single piece that is right down to, like, Okoye is the only one who has the gold accents to her vibranium jewelry or or, or her vibranium armor metal yeah. pieces of the, you know, the other door, door have just the silver, you know, but she's got the gold, you know, because she's the, the leader of the guard. It, it's, it's amazing work. R- Ruth Carter is is just a phenomenal artist. I would say the Harry Potter series comes close, but it is hampered by the fact that the kids have to wear their uniforms all the time, so you don't have that vivid representation across the places until they're in their um, personal gear, and then a lot of the time they're just wearing stuff from the Gap. (laughs) This is one of those films where it's so enthralling being in this place that I, I was just thinking... So what's the next Marvel film going to be? Not set in Wakanda? Okay, I don't want to be there. Wait a second. (laughs) There's big old Wakanda scenes in there. And it seems like a really shrewd idea to to introduce the world to Wakanda here at this early stage of 2018. And then just go a few months later. Hey, do you you folks... uh, Want some more Wakanda? Do you want to pay a little uh, uh, for a ticket back to Wakanda and see some different stuff? And maybe like when they're fighting for Wakanda, maybe you'll care about it more so than New York or uh, LA because it feels like if this place gets trashed that's going to hurt us. Yeah, I, I did see somebody refer to Infinity War as Black Panther 2 and if you look closely maybe T'Challa's old friends the Avengers will turn up to <laughs> out. We haven't talked about Nakia as well. She actually uh, represents a very steadying influence. I mean for a spy you know, she she's she's got her head screwed on. She hasn't got a like like massively militant idea. She's actually incredibly. You say for a spy though. What examples of spies do we have in the Marvel universe so far? And that's what they do. Yeah, she's kind of like Natasha. Uh, again, this is a scenario where we leave James Bond in the dust as the worst spy ever, mm. the one who goes into the casino and announces himself by name <laughs> to the villain. <laughs> The famous spy, according to Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> oh, the famous globe-trotting spy. I would just love him to walk yeah. into somewhere you and You just go, killed James Bond. Bond. James yeah. Bond. And then just, just look at him and go, I've never heard of you. <laughs> should, should I, is there more of that? Or am I supposed to, I, I'm, I'm ragging on James Bond, but only because Spectre so stubbornly pushed us back to the Moore era when they were making some headway with uh, uh, Casino Royale and Skyfall. Uh, and now I don't give... A toss about Bond, but this whole this whole sequence in in Korea was its own little Bond film, like amazing larger than life Bond sequence. That again just sort of lo- left this entire multi billion dollar franchise in the dust. It's the car sequence that Quantum of Solace wished it had. Yeah, yeah. To 
point out Nakia, I mean, all of these actors and actresses we're going to see a lot of in the future. They're going to be like the the, the royalty of the uh, of the the black acting scene. Uh, but Lupita Nyong'o, the the woman has such range to her. Like if you put her two Lego figures together, you've got Nakia and Mars Kanata. These two wildly different characters, and at the same, like they're both like sort of. Um, uh, you know, steadying influences. But you've got her playing the maiden with Nakia, the crone with Mars, and the mother in The Jungle Book as Raksha, the mother wolf. And it's the same actress. And she looks so young, but she's got this aged wisdom and, and presence to her. I can't wait to see Lupita Nyong'o in, in more stuff. Like, she's, she was barely... Like she was in 12 Years a Slave and not, not much else and then kind of just exploded onto the scene. Much like Bozeman himself, who was um, James Brown in Get On Up, which we haven't seen and we now have to see. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael B. Jordan, just to go back a little bit to Killmonger, is rapidly climbing the list of my favourite actors and it's a long goddamn list. Like we saw Creed the week before Black Panther... And it's a near-perfect film. And I hate using the mm-hmm. P word about movies because we mm-hmm. shouldn't be seeking perfection. Like, the imperfection should be things that we simply take on board and go, yeah, the, 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 the CG's a bit wibbly here and there, but it doesn't matter in the long run. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, when a film is this good, not only are the imperfections not worth complaining about, sometimes they're the things that make the film. Yeah. And Marvel keep doing the, I say keep, they've done it twice now, the, uh, oh, you've, you've cocked up your human torch actor there, give him here. Yeah, we'll do him. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. But after Fruitvale Station, where he proved he could do the indie scene, then Creed, then Black Panther, Ryan Coogler could pretty much walk into any board meeting and say, I will do your movie. <laughs> or, or yeah. you know, I will do your movie, uh, but I'm going to need this, this and this. And any executive worth their salt would have to say, Yes. Okay. You seem to know what you're doing. And he's what? 30, 32, 33 years old? He is, he is very 31. Young. 31. And like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not envious. Like, I mean, I, I yeah, am. Yeah, you are. I am envious <laughs> of that he's been able to get his shit together this early and be this fantastic at what he does. But the whole world benefits because, like, mm. he's going to have like a Spielberg y career of just putting out just really high quality films. And yeah. I am so happy about that. And bringing everybody with him. Oh, yeah. I love that. Another thing I love about him is that he brings people with him. Well, welcome a tenth okay. member of the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, one thing that uh, I saw somebody point out, he has yet to do a major film with a... with All of his major films have female cinematographers. Hmm? Every single one. And all of his films so far have had Michael B. Jordan as the uh, you know lead or co-lead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rachel Morrison, cinematographer for uh, Black Panther, oh, um, was the first woman to be nominated for cinematography for an Oscar. Yeah, that was for Mudbound uh, last year. Just on a tangential note, one of the uh, 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 Dora Milaje was also an Amazon, so she's kind of ah, playing for both teams. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's very good at having his female leads challenge his male leads so that they have their own agency and interesting things going on aside from just being the love interest. Because one of the things – I mean you brought up Creed. Bianca 
is far more potentially interesting than Adrian um, because, I, I mean, I, to, to brief tangent, I, I really love the Rocky films and Adrian in the first Rocky has a very solid story. But Bianca has her own sort of stuff going on that could easily be expanded to something far more impressive. Nakia has all of this stuff that challenges T'Challa and you've got all of the history of her being his ex and you see how they're very evenly matched in terms of personality and drive, but she's, you know, she's the one who's like challenging him to be a better person and like not putting up with his stupid crap. And she's like, look, this is, this is where you need to be. But she also very much cares for, cares for him, but she also equally cares for, for her country. Like the, the confrontation, the ideological confrontation between her and Okoye is is beautiful because you know they're talking about how they can best serve Wakanda and even though like neither of them are speaking in paragraphs you get all of this sense of character and history that they have with their people and their country mm-hmm. and it, it feels as well with it with his uh, Kugler's female leads that they've got their own film going on basically yeah. uh, Bianca and Nakia you, you could do a parallel film to Creed and Black Panther about their story and how it yep. intersects with the film that you've you've already seen definitely they're fascinating enough characters in their own rights mm. yeah. yeah I want a spy film with like Shuri and Nakia doing just spy missions with cool tech like I I just want a whole movie of that. Yeah. That's the James Bond film I want to see. Yeah. <laughs> With their sidekicks, Black Widow and uh, White Wolf. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Ooh. Nice. Could be a thing. Uh, part of what Holt makes Nikhil hold up, and this actually goes back to literally every character we've talked about so far, is um, it's the thing I said about how uh, every character represents an argument, and it's every character, It's specifically it's every character is a philosophy and an argument that they believe in. Uh, Wakabi... He, like yes, he he betrays T'Challa, but it's the well because Killmonger delivered. Like Killmonger actually stayed true to his word and delivered what Wakabi wanted, and that's what Wakabi, what Wakabi cares about. Okoye believes in um, staying loyal to the throne, uh, doing her duty above all else. Which and she actually doesn't betray that even when she turns on Killmonger because because it's the, her line gets drawn when Killmonger goes, "Yeah, we're not going to deal with this whole." Uh, duel that clearly isn't over because that's where Killmonger's up and basically admitting to the to the populace. Yeah, I actually don't care about their traditions. I just want to be in charge. Yeah. Um, Shuri's argument is always forward, uh, always looking towards the future. We can always improve and you know abandon the things of the old, which is what pisses off um, Mbaku because his argument when he shows up is not, oh, how dare you use technology? He's like, I'm upset that your technology is being overseen by this child and not that she's a child it's the child who scoffs at tradition that's what he's upset about you know ross has an argument that basically gets dismantled and reforged over the course of the 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 movie so he ends up he has a hell of an arc um claw's argument is just the you know you take what you can get and i don't care who gets hurt in the in in the meantime um so he gets taken out because that leads to nowhere yeah, exactly, and that's what, and that's, there's not much to that argument, and that's why he dies pretty easily, pretty quickly. Um, and th- this holds up through everyone, and it ends up being this great thing where every single character feels very strong because they all have something to stand on if you take away everyone else. No one exists just to bounce off of each other. No one exists just to be a counterpoint to everyone else. 
it's that thing of every single one of these people could have their own movie about them. We've chosen to focus on T'Challa. And much like Wakanda itself, it's this cosmopolitan of all these ideas coming to this nexus, this head uh, at the center. And T'Challa's lesson is pulling from all of these influences, even the influences of Killmonger, to ultimately come out with the best solution of all of them. Mm. Which is not that different from the drawing on the the input of all the tribes that Wakanda has always done. It's an expansion Mm -hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. No, and you, you could argue that part of that the arc for Wakanda itself as its own character is to finally, finally start drawing on the influence of the of the sixth council member, which is the outside world, which Killmonger represents poorly, but is all but again that thing where he's not logically wrong, and it's but that that Wakanda learns the lesson of ignoring Killmonger, ignoring the outside world almost led to its destruction at its hands. So they go forward with the movie of the you're right, we need to be listening to the outside world. A couple of things before we go. Uh, one of the uh, um, people we haven't mentioned, uh, Ramonda, uh, played by Angela Bassett, the uh, Queen Mother. <laughs> Wonderful, statuesque actress that I've been waiting to see in comic book movies for years. She was actually in Green Lantern. You may have, have, have forgotten it now. She was playing Amanda Waller. Oh, yeah. And she got killed off screen. Uh, or, or at least disposed of in a way that they just like well, oh, Amanda Waller. I don't even know what we're doing with her anymore at this point. So she's like, she's finally like in the Marvel universe. And she's like, well, okay, I, this is great. I'll stay. And I've always wanted her to play Storm, and now she's too old to play young, you know, new mutant Storm. But they gave her the white hair. I, I, that might just have been a coincidence. But, <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, she had that wonderful bearing to her. And then Forrest Whitaker as Zuri. T- uh, turns up and he's like yes i just finished the star wars series they killed me off screen i hope nothing happens to me in this oh dear <laughs> i was like he's he, like give this guy a franchise where he can stay alive fetch me poor gallant <laughs> I, I i really loved uh, the um the actor who played the younger version of him like like i don't that's, know if you it took i think that's his notice. son isn't it Okay, no, that's, that's young to Chaka. Because I did notice, like he was. Um, it took me a while to notice, but he was um, uh, emulating his uh, eye defect. Mm. Like it took took me a while to actually notice it, but yeah, mm. he was like when you look at how he holds his face in a neutral position, it's quite it's very similar to Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, I think that's either Forrest Whitaker's. I I am beat it. It was either Forrest Whitaker's. Um, uh, brother or, or son like he's definitely like he's he's related to Forrest Whitaker and all of the all of the actors that they got to play the younger versions of these characters like the the, the kid who plays young Michael B. Jordan I mean that it's really striking how I mean obviously yeah. they give good performances but it's really striking it's like oh yes of course that that person would obviously grow up to look like to, to look like Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger easily yeah uh, like I said, I know young T'Chaka was John Connie's actual son. Okay. So that, that's why that that's why they look so close. Mm. Mm. Oh, and uh, special props to Sterling K. Brown, who played uh, oh, Joe yeah. Roo. Um, like, it's a, such a tiny role, but clearly has such a massive impact. Like you've you not that you don't have a story, but there would be a completely different story to focus on without his, like you know, huge, like really selling his belief in what he's doing to us and to his son. Well, he only has two scenes, technically. The one scene that gets broken up across the movie at the very beginning, and then when he comes back to speak to his son, which, again, going back to the, that thing where 
I, I, I forgot to mention it the first time, but the thing of um, when T'Challa, with T'Challa's vision, it's a new conversation with his father, man to man, whereas Eric's conversation with his dad is actually a relived memory. It's almost not a new conversation. But um, Ster- Sterling K. Brown, like, like the heartbreak in just the delivery of No Tears for Me of mm-hmm. how like how much that hurt and also like again the conviction behind everything he says when he's like they're overly policed overly incarcerated their society's flooded with drug like where he's just the righteous fury behind everything he's saying and again that thing is like you're not wrong nothing about what you're saying is wrong uh side note t'chaka is cold as hell in that scene oh yeah because mm-hmm. where he shows up specifically the part where he's it's again it's the panther thing but he's a cat but he's playing with his food where he shows up and does the like oh baby brother i wanted to see how you're holding up it's no he's not even trying to bait him into admitting it he already t'chaka knows the answer he's just fucking with najobu at that point and it's like wow that's really cold and really messed up he's not willing to hear what he has to say yeah, no, and again, it's it, this passes down to T'Challa, where, again, the same thing I criticized him for earlier, where it's like, why did, he's not willing to take the time to listen to Eric. T'Chaka's not willing to take the time to, like, all right, talk me through this. Like, let me, like, can, we're obviously at a disagreement, but his immediate response is, I expect you to turn yourself in so that you can be incarcerated, and then the moment he defies him, he dies. Like, he, like, T'Chaka overreacts so hard, he immediately le- leaps into, you're the superhuman one, you can take the gun away from him and pin him to the ground, instead he kills him. Yeah. Well, when he's, he says it's when he says it's hard for a good man to be king, he's also saying it's hard for a king to be a good man. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ryan Coogler is is so good that literally every returning character from another MCU movie is better in this one, even the one who was dead. and to go back to angela bassett like i think if there's if there's a a complaint that i have about this movie it's the fact that you don't get the scene that in my mind definitely happened where after they leave the jabari tribe she turns around looks at mbaku and says what the fuck did you say you're not going to help my son get your people together and get over there oh delete it scene (laughs) why do you think he shows up yeah, exactly, and and you know it it works really good as a the cavalry's here surprise. So I'm not like really, but just like in my head, that's definitely the reason that he showed up. Is you know Queen Ramonda just looked at him and said, "Get off the throne, get your stuff, and get moving." It's it's not that I want to be here at the fight, but the alternative is I have to go back to the palace where she is. So <laughs> exactly, like your mom's scary, dude. <laughs> She freaked me out. Okoye will stand in front of a charging rhino. It will not stand in front of a charging Ramonda. There's the bit where uh, during the fight on the field where T'Challa gets thrown and then he's just getting wailed on by his people. It's the visual metaphor for what it takes to be king, the ness, the, the need to be able to endure the blows of your people. Um, not to embrace them, but you have to be able to endure where he's just getting pounded on by all the pissed off uh, border tribe people. Yeah. Um, there's, the, there's the little note of Everett Ross, at, uh, before he goes to Wakanda, he's always in a suit. After he wakes up in Wakanda, from that point on, he's wearing black Wakandan clothing that 
they've dressed him a bit to symbolize the idea of like he has woken up and he's now on board with them like he's now the like no i i don't have a better word for it but uh like a convert almost where he's like no i'm like i'm still a white guy but i'm i'm gonna wear the, the wakandan clothing because i'm more on your side than anyone else's at this point i get it so kind of like Jake Sully in Avatar, only rather than becoming the best Wakandan who ever lived and doing Wakanda better than any Wakandan in the entire film, Ross is just helpful air support, using what he does know how to use. Final note, I'm curious if anyone else caught this. When, there, when uh, just before the, the fight at the field, when um, uh, Killmonger is walking along and he's like, you know, appraising the weapons and he's like, have the spies been alerted? Uh, and uh, Wakabi says... Uh, yes, there was some resistance, but our people in, and he names three locations. Do, mm. do, you, do you guys catch like what those Hong locations Kong, are? New London York, and Hong Kong. And London, yeah. The locations yeah, oh, of... the Doctor Strange strongholds, yup. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. Which, from what I can tell, is just about the only nod to the other MCU. Like, it's that and the, the Bucky nods, the one at the very end, and the, um... The, oh, great, another broken white boy for me to look after. But from what I can tell, that that hint at the, oh, yeah, the Doctor Strange shout-out is the only other crossover hint. It's noteworthy that those are also uh, sites of battlegrounds uh, of previous Marvel films. So you've got the mm-hmm. Battle of New York uh, and uh, the uh, the one in London in Thor the Dark World, because, of course, yep. that was a fantastic battle. Uh, but it's it was so gratifying to not see a city under siege like I said this time just to, to not have yeah. it be buildings yes. fall over and as we hate movies would say 700 9-11s at once yeah, it's, well it's almost like the counter it's almost the counter argument it's almost like Coogler's going look guys it turns out a city can be under siege from within and like it's like, again that idea of a city is only under attack when there's bombs or guns involved as opposed to mm. let's face it the very well established in black culture and minority culture this idea that a city can be getting poisoned from within and you would never notice unless someone is pointing you in the direction like unless you're in tune with it unless it's affecting you personally mm. if you, your building's falling down is not the worst thing that mm. can happen to you no, a, a building can be rebuilt a culture cannot necessarily be revitalized once it's been poisoned too far when T'Challa brings down the, the, the I think they call them blades but he brings down the airship he climbs out and he challenges Eric the second time. Mm-hmm. He calls him by his Wakanda name. He calls him Njadaka, yeah. which I love is, again, the subtle thing. We're not going to hammer on it, but it's there of the, I am acknowledging that you're Wakandan. I'm acknowledging your right to challenge me. I'm also acknowledging that you didn't beat me. Okay. Right. So, uh, where can people find your stuff? So, we'll go with uh, Brendan first. You can find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. You can find me online at normanner.blogspot.com. And I also contribute occasionally to synapse.co. That's C I N A P S E.co. Caro uh, and Debbie? Uh, you can find us at sequentially yours.com. Uh, where you can get our video where we yammer for another hour on Black Panther most recently, <laughs> among other things. Spencer, do you have something you want to plug? Uh, well, there's the New Century, mm-hmm. uh, which I do multiple voices for, and uh, like I said, holds up 
very well for many of the same reasons I said here. Otherwise, you will mostly find me occasionally getting to participate with my friends over at uh, uh, The Death of Subtlety, which is all one word. Uh, we do streams, we do YouTube videos, and then uh, we're slowly expanding all kinds of things, including a occasional bit where you can just come join me to watch me help write uh, screenplays and various other projects. Okay, Death of Subtlety. Uh, Jerome. Uh, you can find me over at Game Burst. Uh, we have a twice-weekly show. Sunday is a new show, and Thursday is a roundtable, either a recent game that we've re- gone through, or a fairly old one, or just a topic we've decided to cover. And Eric. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Deacon05OC. You can also follow my uh, blog, deaconsden.wordpress.com. I write about pretty much anything entertainment-wise, movies, TV, comics. Uh, and then if you want, you can check out uh, my podcast, The Essentials, uh, co-host with uh, Jake Allman and his wife, Heather Allman. You can follow us at WC The Essentials. Right now, we talk about three uh, television series and um, right now we're covering Star Trek the original series uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Batman the Animated Series and Akila where can people find your work you can find me either on Twitter or Instagram. That's Akila Edwards or A-Q-U-I-L-A Edwards. Uh, at the moment, I've been super busy because I've been speaking up because it's LGBT History Month. Mm-hmm. But So I'm doing a lot of that. There's, through there, you can find my Facebook links. And obviously, there's music and a podcast in the works because I've been busy recording loads of material for it. So, yeah. Thank you all so so much for coming on. I'm I'm sorry I didn't get you like Jerome, Akila, Eric. Like you're you're on the show less. Me, Brendan, Caro, and Debbie are used to just going blah 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 blah. And um, Spencer obviously had a ton to say about Black Panther. <laughs> um, uh, is there anything else that you feel like you didn't get to say, which like uh, like you you would have wanted to get in the show? Particularly Akila, since we seem yeah, to have lost you like briefly we, there I, at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably the music is probably amazing. Yeah. Okay. Go way, for it. Music. Yeah. Go. Okay. Music. Um, just in terms of the collaboration between Kendrick Lamar for most of the original songs that are kind of inside the movie mm-hmm. and also the um, soundtrack is brilliant because there's a whole video out there I think it's um, Genius have done a video about how basically yeah. he, he went away and studied um, a lot of Greek culture in Senegal and Mali mm-hmm. and that kind of influenced how the soundtrack came together and instead of T'Challa having a motif he has more like a rhythmic motif mm. which is kind of peppered throughout the whole thing and everyone's got their own little um kind of motifs of their own it just adds to everything and it's, it's just a, it's just a brilliant piece of work because it's just everyone loves it and even the music everyone really loves the project mm. Yeah, the music is very, very strong in this, and I know I, I don't necessarily agree, but I know that the music in Marvel movies is something that has been criticised in the past for being a bit on the bland side, um, not having those strong um, motifs and hooks that, that stick in people's minds, and I think this really 
goes against that grain. Mm. It's composed by Ludwig Göransson, who is, uh, I believe, a Swedish composer who's been with Kugler since the beginning. So he did Fruitvale Station, he did Crete. So this is a case of a director who just brings a composer with him. I love that idea of like just re- like the combining the artistic talents and sort of like the filming and editing around knowing that this one guy that you know who can vibe with you and, and really just gets that. And the fact that Ludwig did that much research and put himself that far into Africa to, to really to make it feel authentic it's it's inspiring stuff and to, it is so transportive to listen to like if you just you know get the lights low and stick it on and just for an evening just listen to it it is really wonderful stuff yeah it's the talking drums the thing i was like okay what's that sound i don't know what that sound is i've heard it so many times before and it's like oh that's very clever and it's just one of the things i i heard it and i was like okay i need to go find out what that is and just great there, there was one piece of uh, music that just like really caught me off guard. It's when he's uh, during the uh, on the ancestral plane. It's, the track is called Ancestral Plane, and it's when like the, it, it sort of cuts out for a second and goes. The, the, the powerful the strings on. moment, right? Yeah. Like it's like when it's like when he tells him to stand up, you're a king, and he looks up, and it kicks in right then. Yeah, but it's the fact yeah. that he's pulled out for a moment just there, and just like let it like flow, so that when he brings it back in, so that rather than it just like constantly ruminating in the background, he can just give it the full impact there. Those chords do play throughout on a variety of instruments, and they are all keyed up with T'Challa's rulership and you know, being a king, and. It, that's that point when I was watching the film. I was like, "This soundtrack is something else." I'm just going to really enjoy going back to it. And and yeah, it's it, it's a, it's an absolute must own. Uh, and we're going to play you out, folks. On uh, with okay, we're going to do a double actually because like you know if you, if you want to stick around for this, all the stars by uh, Kendrick Lamar and Zar, and then after that. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. That's the original version which was sampled for the trailer. It was a 1970 track that calls on beat poetry with an African flavour. Harkening and decrying cynical Western marketing and the cult of celebrity used to hypnotise the people and keep them in line, docile and stupid. Heron suggests very strongly that if the black population could transcend this, then there could be a true uplifting of a community which at the time was still caught in the momentous currents of Martin Luther King, murdered, Malcolm X, murdered, and Huey Newton, co-founder of the radical Black Panthers who would later be shot in 1989, murdered in Oakland, California. It is not a coincidence that this is where the film starts, and this is where Njobu dies killed at the hand of his own brother. Just something to, to get people on their feet and go, no, this is our time now, and it is so perfect for Black Panther. So we're going to end on those two. All our love going out right now to everyone on our Patreon who supports us every month. Big shout out to all you $15 folks who get name checked. That's Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Christopher Finnick, Toby the Inquisitive J, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia, Abril Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. 
but everyone gets a massive thank you. Got a bunch of new folks this month who just came in at the $5 level. That means they get access to a whole ton of bonus content. The Patreon has never looked healthier. Thank all of you. You keep this show going. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the point from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.